And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This edition of the Hagman Report. My goodness, how time flies. It is Thursday, July 12, 2018. When I say time flies, I'm talking about the the, uh, the, the day, month, and year. Again, it just amazes me we're, um, we're at this late date in 2018, in uh, July. The uh, Folks, real quick, just uh, before we bring our guests on, watching the, I don't know how many of you out there watched the, uh, my goodness, the Strzok hearing. Yeah. The, the congressional hearing. The PC uh, one. Oh my goodness. And, and folks, go to the Gateway Pundit right now. Jim yeah. Hoft, he wrote an article today. Fireworks. Representative, Representative Gomer goes there, calls out Cheater Strzok for lying to his wife about Lisa Page. Now there's three different videos from a guest we had on yesterday, Scott Whitlock, that are featured in this article. But they detail the heated exchanges between Strauch and Gomer. And Louis Gomer Amazing. really laid it to him. But this whole hearing, uh, we, we can talk about this more later, yeah, but this whole hearing was just, uh, to me, it, it, it's political theater. But. Well, at this point, yeah, it's, uh, and it, as you said, and, uh, until we see somebody in handcuffs, uh, which I believe Strauch should be in handcuffs, so should Page and uh, many others, especially Page, uh, Strauch for lying, uh, in my view. Uh, in the, for today, in addition to everything else, but my goodness, it was just amazing. Right now, we've got a really special, special program lined up for you. Uh, for the first two hours of the program, we've got uh, a good friend of mine uh, and and the man, really, just uh, uh, a, a brother. Uh, um, hold on a second here. Uh, Joe, talk for a second. I have right. to talk to Eric here. Talk, talk for a second. Okay, so yeah, let's just do this. The uh, the the Strauch hearing today. Uh, by the time we did the Daily Show, we had a number of sound bites and and interactions. Uh, Trey Gowdy was one of them, where we saw, uh, you know, some interesting questions that Gowdy. That some people are saying, "Oh, this was Gowdy's best performance." So I don't call these performances; these are interviews to get to information. And you know, unless we're going to call not only Peter Strauch, but unless we're going to call. Andrew McCabe, unless we're going to call James Comey, unless we're going to call the people who were involved in the unmasking and the people who were involved in the FISA uh, process to get warrants against Trump administration's officials, this is a very incomplete picture. But one of the takeaways of this is the arrogance of Peter Strauch. As Gomer says it best, you're lying. You know we know you're lying, and yet you do it with a smile on your face. No care in the world. The arrogance... I mean, do these people think they're right? No, they don't think they're right. They think they're right in their own mind, in their own justifications. Yeah, exactly. But they know they're not doing what's best for the country. And for those Democrats on that congressional committee to sit there and call Strzok, what, a, a hero, to call him, uh, you know, pretty much uh, a man above, uh, with, with no credibility issues, even though he got caught cheating on his wife, even though his bias shines through more so than anything else. He has the gall to sit there and say, I have no bias, and not only do I not have bias, those private 
opinions of mine never entered into any decision I made in either the Hillary Clinton investigation or the Trump investigation. Do you really believe that? Yeah. But again, I got, I got a, I got a used car to sell you. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, I apologize for that before. Actually, our guest, my, well, our guest did such a great job. Um, Eric the Tech did not realize that Todd already had the information. So, uh, something that, uh, something that usually, there's a step I didn't do because I spoke to our two, or I spoke to Steve Quayle, who's, who's our uh, guest going to be interviewing Raymond, Raymond Ibrahim, Ibrahim, I'm sorry, uh, today. And, uh, yeah, Eric, Eric the Tech said, Hey, wait a minute. We have, we have a real problem. And the problem was something that Steve had already taken care of. So thank you, Eric. And thank you, Todd. And thank you, most importantly, Steve. Steve, welcome to the program today. An important program about, uh, the Islamic infiltration into, well, into the West. Well, I think, Doug, this is a very pivotal and important point. We're blessed tonight to have Raymond Ibrahim, one of the finest scholars, and we're going to have him tell your story on the 14 centuries of war between Islam and the West. Now, it's really critical for people to understand that if you do not follow the history of what's been going on for 14 centuries, there's nothing new under the sun, but there's a reapplication, and, and interestingly enough, uh, I remember 20 years ago, and, and Raymond's on, so he can hear my voice, right, Raymond? Can Raymond hear me? Uh, yeah, Raymond, he, he's on. I think he is. Raymond, yeah, Mr. Eber, uh, there we go. I, I didn't hear anything until uh, uh, once Steve is introduced. I never, I didn't hear anything. Uh, okay, okay. And, and Doug, can you give me a little more volume or Todd on Raymond? I, I don't know if he's on Skype. Yeah. I'm not hearing him very clearly. Uh, let me. Let me start off by saying this. When, when you look at war, you look at so many dimensions, but when you're talking about the war in the Middle East and when you're talking about the biblical narrative and you're talking about the future prophetic ramifications, there seems to be this, what I would call, divorce from reality in Western thought and teaching as to the entire nature of the difference between what Christendom has accomplished versus what Islam has destroyed. Now, it's important for people to understand, Raymond Ibrahim is one of the world's scholars on this, and obviously he's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he came out of a Islamic background. So, you know, Raymond, in order for us to set the stage, I want you to establish your credentials and, and just discuss your background in the field, because again, when you're talking about war between Western powers and Eastern powers in the history of World War One, World War Two, and soon to be World War Three and the Cold War, etc., that's set in a context of Western thought. But please develop for the listeners, if you would, uh, to get a grasp on how Middle Easterners, especially the Muslims, look at the world. Because, again, everybody's trying to say, this is just, oh, you know, these poor misunderstood Middle Easterners. So take your liberties, sir. And when you're done, you can hand it over to me for a break. But people want to hear you tonight. So, you know, establish, tell people who you are. And you're you're an, a great researcher, an author of the new book, Sword and Scimitar, which, by the way, I'm a sword guy, so I love your cover, and I love okay. swords. So go ahead, sir. Okay, Steve. And uh, first of all, it's great to be with you. Um, thanks for having me. <clears throat> and, um, you know, just one correction. 
Um, I, I'm actually, um, my background is uh, Coptic Christian uh, from Egypt, so I'm actually, I was never Muslim, or my family was never Muslim, though, of course, we have a lot of experience with them, so we're, uh, the, the word Coptic uh, essentially okay, means... Okay, I, um, I apologize. Oh, yes, that's, I apologize. No, that's fine. That's why it's, that's a lot of people assume that, uh, so that's fine, but just for the record. Um, having said all that, of course, uh, as you say, a lot of my worldview and my understanding of the world, both on a personal experience level and um, a professional academic level, has very much uh, informed and governed my view on Islam, especially vis-a-vis -vis the West, uh, or Christendom, really, as you were saying. And... Um, so there's a lot that we're going to be talking about, obviously, and uh, what, ultimately what we're talking about and what we want to do is we're, we're talking, we want to learn about today and what's going on. But as as you sort of alluded, you're not. We, it's impossible to understand that without getting the historical context. And uh, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because whenever so many people here in the West assume that they have this kind of vague, nebulous idea about what went on. Uh, historically between the West and the Islamic world. And I'm here to tell you that that assumption, that very mainstream assumption, is not just wrong, it's the antithesis of reality. Um, you know, this, this idea that Muslims were, you know, tolerant and they spread out and, you know, Christians were backwards and wild and fanatical, the sort of thing that we see in all these movies, you know, Kingdom of Heaven and uh, so forth. You know, we can go down a list of movies that depict it this way. But it's not just movies, it's actual well-credentialed, well-respected academics that engage in this sort of chicanery regularly. So much so that the epistemology, Western epistemology, in, insofar as history goes, is so skewed. And, uh, you know, it's impossible to start understanding where we are today to understand, you know, phenomena like uh, the Islamic States or Al-Qaeda or all these different groups or just uh, the Muslim migrant wave in Europe and what's going on there and so forth. So definitely I want to talk about uh, the history, but insofar as just to give uh, listeners a little bit of my background. So as I was saying, my family, I was born here actually in the United States, uh, but my parents came here from Egypt, and um, they're what's called Coptic Christians. Basically the word Coptic uh, is related to the etymologically to the word Egyptian. And uh, today, when you hear it, Copt, most people who know the word, I mean, usually if I say I'm a Copt, people ask me what you know precinct I work at, <laughs> and I have to elaborate. But usually, uh, for people who understand what the word means, you know, it, it's synonymous with Christian, okay? But really, you know, if you look at the word Egypt and Egyptian, it comes from the Greek word Aegyptos. And so when the Arabs overran uh, Egypt, which was full of Egyptians or Aegyptos, they cut off the first and last syllables, and they were left with gift, and that became copt in English uh, transliteration. So all the word copt means is really a native Egyptian who, who of course, were all Christian when the Muslims came. Uh, so that, that's my background, my family background. Uh, and my family actually left Egypt, and uh, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as it is now. Um, but the, the discrimination was definitely well entrenched. Um, you know, when it comes to things like jobs and, and schools and so forth. And that was one of the reasons that my father and mother uh, left, and I'm glad they did. Um, so I was born here, but but because of that sort of background, I've you know I grew up in that sort of household, and I understood uh, the nature of the beast, as it were. And then when I got older, uh, in college, uh, I, I studied uh, this uh, the history. My the, my degrees are in me are in history, um, bachelor's and 
masters, and I almost got a PhD, but I, you know, the exigencies of life, writing books, full-time work, family, and so forth, I never finished it. Um, but, uh, it, when I was doing, even when the 9-11 attacks happened, for example, I was, uh, writing my thesis. Uh, this is, uh, actually, I was started it before 2001. So in the, in the late 90s, I was actually studying the, um, the history of Islam vis-a-vis -vis Christendom in their very first battle. And as you can see, this segues to my book because that's how long I've been writing this book, sometimes in my head. But that's been my interest, the, the battle, the military history. And, and that battle occurred in 636 AD, and I wrote my master's thesis on it. And, and actually, um, my chairman was Victor Davis Hanson, basically America's premier military historian, uh, who also wrote a foreword um, to Sword and Scimitar. So that's all good stuff. But the what I what I wrote when I wrote that thesis, what I noticed is I was just immersed in history. I didn't really follow much uh, contemporary affairs, and uh, you know I read the historical texts and the primary sources and the languages and so forth. And then what got me is when 9/11 happened, um, and I started reading in Arabic because it wasn't available in English. What Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri were saying, everything they were saying was actually a repeat of history, and they were intentionally cultivating. Uh, their words in verbatim of the heroes of Islam from the 636 uh, battle that I was talking about. And very few people understood that. I mean, it just went over their heads. But in writing to fellow Muslims, they articulated it in the verbatim words. They positioned themselves as following in the footsteps of the original jihadis from the 7th century who invaded, you know, the world and, and that sort of thing. And long story short, um, because of my interest uh, in what was happening in the now and in the past, I I went to uh, Washington, D.C. I, I got accepted in Georgetown University. I was going to get another master's degree, and that's also where I started my Ph.D. But uh, and, we, and that's a whole other topic. The politics of that particular school are very skewed, uh, very apologetic for Islam. So I had difficulties there. Um, and then I, got a, I, I started working at the Library of Congress in the Middle Eastern Division. And uh, that was a great job because it was like uh, we, the Library of Congress has basically more books than anywhere else in the world, and it gets every uh, they get acquisitions constantly. So I had all these tubs full of books written in Arabic that weren't even cataloged, and virtually no one even knew about their existence. And um, I would peruse through them, and I was shocked. And that's when I found that Al Qaeda had written several books, um, of course, in Arabic that more or less contradicted everything they were saying to the West. So, for example. Uh, after 9-11, you would often see Osama bin Laden appear in some video and BBC would translate it or, or CNN, and he would continuously make all these arguments to the point that Al-Qaeda or we or the Muslim world in general attacked you or are angry because of your policies, uh, because of, uh, you know, Israel, because of grievances. You know, the list went on and on. And they never talked about religion. And, and of course, uh, you know, the... Western media just relayed all that hook, line, and sinker without critically looking into it. Now, these books that I was referring to that I came across in these tubs at the Library of Congress, written in Arabic by um, Ayman Zawahri, who's currently the Al-Qaeda lead man, and <clears throat> the late Osama bin Laden, completely contradicted that argument. Um, they said, we first and foremost hate them, the West, because they're infidels, or in Arabic, kafir, or kuffar. Um, and even if they did everything we want and gave us everything we want, we would still attack them and we would give them three choices, either convert to Islam or pay jizya and, and be a dhimmi, and we'll get into all that, uh, basically like a third-class citizen or fight to the death. 
Um, and so anyway, that's a long story short of how I, I wrote my first book, which was called The Al-Qaeda Reader. I, I translated those texts, and then I juxtaposed them to the propaganda pieces that the West was familiar with. And I think a lot of people uh, saw the contradiction and the, basically the two-facedness of Al-Qaeda. Um, and that sort of thing is still continuing. Uh, but after that, I just uh, got into publishing and writing articles and other books. I wrote Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christianity. And, uh, you know, that's like a 300-page book, and it's just based on two or three years of research of just and, nonstop and, attacks. And, and Mr. Yeah. Ibrahim, if, if I may say this, it, to the folks out there, I've got that book, I've read that book, and it's a phenomenal read, important read, required thank to you. understand where we are today. And, and you did a fantastic job. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Go ahead, that. sir. All right, yeah, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the thing about that book, though, is it came out right before the rise of the Islamic State. And uh, so the point is, you know, to a lot of people, when they hear about Christians getting persecuted, for example, in the Islamic world, they immediately associate it with the sort of spectacular stories you hear that involve the Islamic State. You know, the bombing of churches or attacks on Christians traveling to monasteries and so forth. But this book was actually written before the rise of the Islamic State, and you got literally in that book, which, like I said, was based only on, I only looked at the last two or three years before I wrote it. It came out in 2013, so basically, you know, from 2011 to 2013, you literally have hundreds of anecdotes that are not unlike what ISIS or Islamic State was doing, and yet very few of them got reported. And, you know, I have a theory about why that happens. I think it's easy. The media, on the one hand, doesn't mind... Uh, reporting when an Islamic terrorist group does a spectacular attack, A, because they have to, you know, they bomb the church, 50 people are dead, etc., so they have to, but then at the same time, because it is a professional Islamic terrorist organization, they can, you know, take take the, the route by saying, okay, it's a terrorist group, we know they have nothing to do with Islam, and, you know, uh, and this doesn't represent your average Muslim, but the problem is, and this is why they don't want to talk about the bigger problem, that's why I usually... When I talk about the Islamic State, to me, they're just the tip of a humongous iceberg that's hidden beneath that very few people see. The bigger problem is that when you look at, let's say, the 50 worst nations in the world to be a Christian in, um, based on, for example, there's an organization it's called Open Doors, uh, and they, it's an international human rights organization, and they publish annually a report about the 50 worst nations um, that abuse the Christians that live there. And lo and behold, 40 out of the 50 uh, habitually are Islamic nations or basic so you can almost say 80% of the of the persecution that Christians are experiencing is at the hands of Muslims and now these Muslims that do this are not ISIS they're not Al Qaeda they're either um, they're either governmental figures oftentimes our friends and allies like Saudi Arabia for example um, they're just the regular average run of the mill Muslim just the, the Muslim mob uh, police and so forth so I think uh, the media, you know, they, they'll talk about the spectacular stuff, but they won't talk about the non-going, less spectacular, uh, but it is definitely persecution for the obvious reason that when you see it happening at all levels of society, including the government, you know, and you see it happening in all nations, African, black nations, Arab nations, or Iranian nations, Turkey, Central Asia, East Asia, Indonesia, Nigeria, uh, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, Central Asia. I mean, these are places that are different nationalities, ethnicities, languages, cultures, and yet you see the same patterns of persecution. So I think it becomes very clear that the root source of it has to be Islam. And I think that's why a lot of this gets suppressed. Um, 
Uh, I think I've talked enough, but basically that's a sort of introduction of the sorts of, uh, of uh, well, views. Yeah. Yeah, Raymond, let me, let me put this into uh, context because, again, I think what you're saying, the bigger picture, today, for instance, the migrants uh, wanted to repay their Italian rescuers by threatening to decapitate them. Is it not obvious, that, and, and it, it, you're, since you're the scholar, at what point after 9-11 and when we were over in Iraq and Iran, in your opinion, what changed or who changed the discourse? Because the discourse was, you know, obviously, these are uh, Islamic radicals that are doing this, blah, blah, blah. But the press is complicit. Now we've seen the destruction of Europe. And in your book, The Sword and the Scimitar, you go through all the different battles. But I think it's really critical in the first hour here to establish the mindset. Because here's the thing. The American people seemingly don't care as long as it's Christians. The butchering of Christians in Egypt goes on and on and on. Actually, it goes on and on and on and on all over the world. When Angela Merkel said nothing about the Islamic decapitation of the little baby, or when Sweden and Norway absolutely give their women to plunder, and then they want to embrace Sharia or Sharia law in the United States, and FGM, female genital mutilation, how is it, and, and maybe you can help us understand this, how is it that Islamic women seem to submit to be no better than dogs because they're treated that way and would go along with, uh, you know, body mutilation. And, and then the rest of the women, Muslim women in the world, see their, quote, sisters, and I'm talking about any woman who's a woman, being stoned, being beheaded, being, you know, horrifically tortured, brutalized, gang raped. And, and the story of what has gone on with the Yazidi women and everything else, it's just so heartbreaking. And I'll never forget my, I'll never forget this as long as I live, when I heard a woman who was, who was so abused that her insides were on the outsides and she begged to die. So where, can I ask you the bottom line? I don't know if you and I've never done an interview before, but we'll work backwards. But the bottom line, why does the West fail to see the war that is against them? Why do the, three questions, why do the women in the West seemingly embrace this most intolerant to female uh, behavior and third, when did it change in your opinion? Maybe we'll go there first. That that basically, uh, you know, the Christians became the bad guys, and we know the devil's behind it. We know this is the end times, and also, you know, uh, if, if you haven't read Albert Pike's the, uh, Third World War statement, you know, whether he wrote it or somebody else wrote it, turning the Muslims against the Christians, the Christians against the Muslims, the Muslims against the Jews, and then they bring on the pure doctrine of Lucifer. Mm -hmm. So let's take that first question. In your opinion, sir, what was the changing point in the public, well, actually in the military, where all of a sudden, you know, as, as the Muslim threat uh, diminished and they would never deal with the ideology, they would only deal with the event, there's a true statement, and yet then, if you remember, then patriots and anybody who's a homeschooler, but at the end of the day, here's the bottom line, and if you'd feed back to this, Muslims good, Christians bad. In your opinion, how did that come to pass? <laughs> all right, Steve, that's a lot. And you know what? I actually wrote them all down in bullet points, so I'm going to address it. Um, yeah, you, you, you like that compound? Uh, Mr. Ibrahim, uh, I, I get used to these compound questions from Steve Quayle, and they're all, you know, I, I love them too. Uh, it covers the waterfront. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, and I got them all down. 
Um, so I may not go in this exact order, uh, you know, that you said, but I, I, I do believe I'll be able to address them all. So let's just start uh, with the Muslim worldview, okay? Um, the Muslim worldview, you know, when you think about it, and, and, and okay, and I'm actually going to address all of them at once, kind of in, 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 in and out, kind of like meld them together. So the problem with the West and why it does not understand the Muslim worldview is because it just projects itself onto everyone, okay? And so if we are all materialists and we all, even if we're religious and if we're Christians, like most Western Christians are, it's kind of like a skin-deep thing. I do it on the side. Uh, you know, it's very, um, uh, <laughs> you know, it's to myself. I, I don't bother anyone. I don't talk about it. I, you can't really differentiate between a secular atheist and a Christian. Okay, so that kind of mentality has been projected onto the Muslim world. And so when they scream jihad and we want to kill you and I'm ready to blow myself up for Allah because all of that is so alien to the Western secular mind, they have to rationalize it and come up with a, with a, a paradigm that explains it because, of course, they've projected themselves. You know, these people can't honestly mean it because everyone's like me. Okay, so then that's where you get the famous grievance, uh, the grievance paradigm. Okay, the more Muslims attack and kill people, the more that's a reflection of them being upset at what someone's done to them. Okay, um, and that of course is, is baloney. In fact, what I was referring to, the Al Qaeda reader, my first book, Al Qaeda, all they said is we have grievances, grievances, grievances. But then up front they said, yeah, we said we have grievances, but we also hate them per se because they're infidels. And in fact, uh, the Islamic State, I'll give them credit for at least being a little more forthright than other Islamic groups like Al-Qaeda, because they wrote a, in one of their issues last year, they actually addressed the question, why are we, why do we fight you and why do we hate you? And they said verbatim, we fight and hate you first and foremost because you are non-Muslims, and we are commanded to do so. And then it was actually a, a, a bullet point list, and then somewhere like in the seventh list, uh, seventh point, after, the first one was because you're an infidel, that's why. Somewhere all the way down, it was like, and because, you know, you're unjust to us, or, you know, you attacked us in here, or, or you invaded Iraq, whatever. And, and then even there, they made it a point, after saying that in the seventh point or so, they said, but it's important for you to understand that even if you didn't do that, we would hate you, because you're an infidel. And then they quote the Quran, uh, Surah 64, which um, says to Muslims, you have a good example in Abraham. Okay, because of course Abraham the prophet, uh, they take him as a prophet and he's been appropriated, but he's been changed because they say you have a good example in Abraham because he said to his people, uh, because the biblical account is Abraham just leaves because God calls him to leave his people, etc. But in the Islamic account and in the Quran, not only does he break away from them, but he tells them nothing, hate and enmity will forever reign between me, Abraham, or a believer and you and he was talking to his relatives his family and so this is uh, the doctrine actually it's a well known doctrine amongst Muslims uh, I can give you the Arabic name but I usually translate it as loyalty and enmity and it's very well grounded in the Quran and it's a very tribalistic mentality which basically you know if you're not Muslim then I hate you and the Quran literally calls on believers to dislike their fathers their brothers uh, all their relatives, if for the sole reason that they're not Muslim. Okay, now, to go back a little bit, you know, how this happened, one of the theories I have about Muhammad is the reason he was so successful, okay, is because uh, he essentially created a religion completely based on the tribal mores of 7th century Arabian Bedouin 
uh, culture, which is fundamentally tribal. Okay, so he created this doctrine which, so from now on, it wasn't just uh, one tribe fights another tribe, as it always was in Arabia. It's now we're all one tribe, Arabs, basically, or Muslims, as they call themselves, and the enemy is everyone else who's a non-Muslim. And the whole thing is just, you, you because tribal warfare, you're outside the tribe, you're nothing. Okay, if I find you out in the desert, I kill you, I rape you, I enslave you, I plunder you. That's how it is, because you're not part of the tribe. So that mentality still exists today in Islam. Uh, it's just the, the names have changed. It's not a tribe, it's now the non-Muslim is, is, is an outsider. He's the other, and he's just free game. And that's exactly how Islam and Islamic law was created. And that's why you have this sort of dichotomized worldview and this loyalty and enmity, loyalty to fellow Muslims, enmity to non-Muslims, and so forth. Okay, so that, that goes way back, and you still have it today. So that's uh, a little bit about the Muslim world and, and the sort of enmity that developed. Now, the question about the West uh, today, why is it, you know, what, why doesn't it get it? What's going on? Why are they doing all this? Uh, these, of course, are all very important questions. Um, I believe it depends on, you know, who we're talking about, because obviously the West is made up of different individuals. So on the one hand, um, I believe there's a lot of ignorance, okay, actual innocent ignorance, and I think this is more prevalent amongst the general society, just the populace, because they've been essentially brainwashed. Uh, by a lying media, then on the higher ups, I think it's it's willful deception uh, because you can't be a person with a PhD in Islamic studies, you know, who's <laughs> spent his whole life doing it, and then say the sorts of things that they say, which is all a lie and meant to whitewash and exonerate Islam. So you definitely have a lot of deception going on too. And uh, now, why that? De so ignorance is easily understood as far as deception goes. Yeah. Um, that's that's definitely something that I, we're going to address a little more. Uh, you know, the motive behind the deception. But you were also asking me, you know, what why would an Islamic woman submit? Uh, well, the answer is in these regions and in these countries, you know, education. The education system is essentially pure indoctrination. Okay, what what they translate here in the United States when they say something like El Azhar University, okay, which is the most prestigious university, quote unquote. Uh, in the Islamic world located in Cairo um, it is not a university the concept of university, here we go again this is a western construct being projected onto Islam, it's not a university, it's a madrasa and a madrasa is basically a place where you go and for, you know, for to, to be honest you get indoctrinated and brainwashed into Islam, okay so the same reason that you can get a young man who gets so indoctrinated to the point that he decides to go blow himself up and die, is the same reason you have a lot of these Muslim women who you know will put on the you know the burqa and so forth and get beaten and and try to proselytize other women to come join it you know it's a pretty indoctrinated system uh, there's you know and again uh, I would caution the reader or the listener not to uh, you know project this sort of Western free thinking thing out there because in these places there there isn't any of this free thinking it's straight up indoctrination and it's considered a good thing. Um, because that's that's it, you. I mean, look, it, we're talking about the one religion in the world that says on record, if you leave it, we kill you. Okay, it doesn't that doesn't speak volume. That doesn't speak much for its confidence. Okay, um, and there's actual Islamic clerics like Yusuf Al Karadawi, considered one of the most important uh, uh, sheikhs or clerics um, in the Islamic world, who's on record saying, if it wasn't for the apostasy penalty, meaning that. If it wasn't for Islam, uh, uh, you know, uh, obligating 
Muslims to kill a Muslim who tries to leave the religion, he said Islam would have died right away. Um, and so he, but see, they don't, <clears throat> while you and I hear that, <clears throat> and we think to ourselves, well, <laughs> gee, don't you get it? Don't you see that that means no one wants it? No one wants to be part of it unless they're forced? They don't understand that. To them, it's been accepted that force and the sword and subjugation is what God wants, and that is how truth, quote-unquote, is spread. So uh, the point of this whole excursus is to just tell you that it's a w really different worldview, the Islamic worldview. You know, and just to cap it off, uh, I'll use a technical term. Um, there, in Arabic, uh, there's the, the term, it's called usul al-fiqh, okay? And what that is usually, most English uh, translators will translate it into the roots of jurisprudence, okay? Um, and then what, by, what they mean by that is the Quran and the Hadith, basically the Sunnah, the example of Muhammad as recorded in these uh, what, what are called Hadith collections, um, and, and a couple other things. But those are the, the pillars, those two things. Now, what's interesting is it's not an accurate translation, as most people do, uh, of that word. It, it's not the roots of jurisprudence. It's actually the roots of knowledge. The word fiqh actually means knowledge. So what we're talking about here, the roots of knowledge, that's our English word, epistemology. So what that means is the entire Islamic worldview and the paradigm that they use to sift reality through is fundamentally based on, one, the Quran and what it says, and two, the words and deeds of Muhammad, all of which are just antithetical to all the values that Western civilization holds dear, okay? Um, so this is, uh, you know, this is a way to let you understand why, why we're having this conflict. Um, and when we get into the history, then it'll even be clearer, because you'll realize this conflict's been going on in even a more extreme way for centuries. Um, now, the West... So what's going on in the West and, and this sort of embrace in Islam and, uh, you know, why are Christians always the bad guy and so forth. So my belief is uh, the people, the groups, the entities, uh, you know, I said, I've actually written an article about this. I call them fools or liars. You know, it's a, you can't be, you can either be one or the other or a little bit of both, but there's no other way to rationalize all these people who just don't get it about Islam. You either just can't get reality, you're... <laughs> mentally challenged, or you're just being, you know, disingenuous, okay? So let's look at the disingenuous group right now. Obviously, there's a lot of ignorant people, uh, some, you know, willful, some, it's really not their fault because if you're part of the public school system, if you watch TV, if you watch movies, it's the narrative is consistent. Islam good, Christians bad. Um, okay, let me stop. Let me stop you there because again, I think one of the words that is really critical. We're seeing this in the whole Trump, uh, uh, you know, escapade by the crooked DOJ and everybody else. Islam defines. Correct me if this is. Or correct me if I'm wrong. But Islam neglects real history or empiric history and puts everything within the framework of their rewritten history according to the Prophet Muhammad and according to all of their writings. So in essence, don't pay attention to anything in the world. Just pay attention to only what we tell you. So in essence, they basically are they, they are putting all their followers in a box, and if you don't jump into their box, they cut your head off or they do whatever they do. So they control the narrative, and that's why that's what I think you're saying. Is that not correct? No, that is correct, um, absolutely. Um, you know, and this goes all the way back. For example, 
Muhammad came around and, you know, he's, he basically tried to put himself in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets and then in Jesus. And then next thing you know, he appropriated them. And all of a sudden, well, the books of the Jews and the books of the Christians were tampered with. Uh, the current Bible that we have has been uh, willfully manipulated by, you know, whatever Christians or Jews for whatever reason they had. And so the Quran has been sent down to straighten it all out. So if the New Testament talks about the divinity of Christ or the, or his crucifixion and his resurrection, all of which, of course, Islam, um, rejects, that's because it was tampered with. And so now we have the final word, which is the Quran. Now, what proof do they have? that the Bible or the or the Old or the New Testaments were tampered with? Zero. They can't show anything. Um, you know, we have Greek manuscripts of the Bible from the first century, and they say the same thing. So why do they accept it? Because that's what they're told, and they accept it uh, on faith or on indoctrination, if you will. And now, what you said about history is the same exact thing. Um, the, the teaching of history, and I mean, as you probably well know, uh, Western standards of history are such that there are now legitimate questions about even the existence of Muhammad. Okay, um, and that's uh, that's not because there's a dearth of uh, sources on Muhammad. Uh, there's a ton, but but the early Islamic, the historiography tradition of the Islamic world is has become so under uh, criticism by true scholars. Uh, that it's just all basically fabricated. Now, I personally, for and I have good reason to believe that a person, maybe his name wasn't Muhammad or whatever it was, but there was definitely some guy who said he was a prophet and he ta who taught the concept of jihad, basically warfare, and if you die, you go to heaven, and you get the 90 or 72 virgins or whatever. I think that's definitely legitimate because we have very early writings, uh, actually two years after Muhammad's traditional death date in 634. You actually have non-Muslims who talk about a prophet in Arabia who's coming with bloodshed and so forth. So I definitely think he existed. But but in the Islamic world, and I'll give you another example. So in Egypt, okay, uh, Egypt was uh, you know it was pharaonic, and then it, the Greeks, Alexander the Great came. It became Hellenistic, and then Rome came. And basically, it was Greco-Roman in language and culture, uh, in Greek especially. They spoke Greek for almost a thousand years before Islam came, from basically 320 BC up until 640 AD. So we're talking about a thousand years. <clears throat> when you go and you look at the curriculum of, of history in, in, in Egypt, about, about Egypt, that whole section is virtually gone. Okay, and then after, of course, the Roman period, you got Christianity, St. Mark, um, is the one who went and proselytized Egypt, and it was one of the, you know, the heaviest Egyptian uh, Christian nation up until the Islamic conquest. Okay, all of that is is completely gone in Islamic history. They talk a little bit about pharaohs, and then how wonderfully uh, the Muslims came and entered. and And here's a good one. You know, they they don't use the word conquest um, in the in Arabic whenever they're talking about Islam conquering. They use a euphemism. Uh, the Arabic word is fat. Uh, kind of like the Palestinian group, you know, F-A-T-H, heavy H. And what that word means is opening. And so, therefore, any country that the Islamic world went into and essentially ransacked and murdered and slaughtered and plundered, it's not called a conquest. It's called an opening because it was done altruistically to bring the wonderful light of Islam to the denizens of that nation. And so that's just to give you an idea of how history is taught and whitewashed and, and euphemized. Okay, um, but I'll, I, if you want, I can get now into why the West is uh, why the why now in the West Islam's a good guy. 
Christians are the bad guy. And this is actually, okay, before, you know, very... Yeah, yeah. yeah. before yeah, this, you do, very, I want to ask... Hey, Raymond, I want to ask right. you a question, okay? And we'll go to that okay. right away. But did you... Do you not think it interesting that obviously... Obama's Islamic roots, and then the highest-ranking military members and the highest-ranking intelligence under Obama, some of those guys are openly, they converted to Islam, okay? So, and then you have, you know, Valerie Jarrett, who basically said in 1974 that, I think it was 74 at Berkeley, that her goal was to turn America into an Islamic nation, I think this is paraphrasing, using their own laws. So did you not, did that not show up, I'm sure it did, but on your radar, if you had the military, you had the intelligence community, and you had the president stacking the leading law enforcement agencies, whether it was the DHS, FEMA, whatever, with uh, high-ranking Islamic, uh, if you would, uh, plants, uh, is that, did that also take part, uh, in your opinion, in the changing of the whole, if you will, war against, uh, quote, militant Islam, and their, quote, Islamic war against the West, is that, you know, how much does that play into your uh, investigation or study? And then go ahead and just take that question and go on. Sure. Well, you know, we can talk about generic Western leaders and just how much they have contributed to the Islamic cause. And then you got Obama, okay, who's his right, own. Right, but you've also got... You got Clapper, I think, and you've right. got some of those guys. And Doug, I, do you remember there was a list of those guys? But obviously, you yep. had uh, at one point you had the head of the CIA and you had the head of the National Security Agency talking about right. it. And now you've got mayors of major cities uh, converting, and you've got the Canadian Prime Minister, a closet Muslim who basically is—I'm talking about right. Trudeau. So, so, so what I'm saying is this, and I think this is what I'm just asking you to address and then just go straight in. And I think it's important for people. This is, this is what I would call the bottom line in this is that when the West quit recognizing Islam for the threat it was, then these people in national intelligence, in the military, you know, I can remember, you know, I got to be careful here. I can remember having discourses with some generals saying, "Don't you understand? You know that they are they are controlling the narrative." And and their answer to me was, "Of course we understand it, but unfortunately we have to take orders from the higher ups, and they're all embracing it." So go ahead, and then I'll be quiet until the break. <laughs> sure. Well, the, the idea that you know there's an active Islamic infiltration at the highest echelons of the government is absolutely true. Um, and you've, you know, you've mentioned various different, uh, you know, lesser than president type peoples, okay, uh, generals and, you know, all these other clapper and so forth. Um, and I think that's definitely all legitimate. Uh, but just for time's sake, I'll focus on Obama, uh, real quick, because what's important about him is, you know, whereas, uh, okay, whereas others you can, some people will argue, well, that's just a theory. It hasn't been proven that he's a Muslim. It's an accusation, et cetera. Fine. Let's put that aside. Now, Obama, Okay, of all the U.S. presidents who've ever come, uh, whoever became power, uh, I mean, whoever became presidents, um, he so fundamentally understands Islam. And, I, and the reason for that is, you know, he grew up in Indonesia. Okay, Indonesia is the world's largest, most populous Muslim nation. They go through, you often hear, you know, for a while, I don't know about it anymore, but you would often hear that Indonesia is uh, uh, an example of a moderate Islamic country. Well, I don't think so. The same sorts of things that you see everywhere happen there. 
uh, if you, you know, if you, if, if a Christian uses the word Allah, he gets arrested, he's blasphemy, he gets in jail, maybe killed, etc. So it's, you can, by Western standards, yes, it's still radical. Okay, now he went to those schools, those madrasas, and he grew up with that, with that culture and with that understanding. So, I mean, there's pictures of him in Somalia, and Somalia is about the most radical Islamic nation around. And him dressing up like a, like a Somali sheikh or cleric and so forth. So this man definitely understands <laughs> Islam. And yet, he would come up and make, you know, give us the same routine about Islam means peace and, and this and that. So that was obviously a lie. And, and he, and, and, uh, he's trying to dupe the American people. But like you said, there's, a, this is happening on many levels, lesser levels, not just the president. And it is an active, uh, uh, uh it's an active, Project to basically infiltrate the government and to and I, I you know a lot of people won't believe us and they'll say oh come on how can America become an Islamic nation or or be run by Islam well look at the changes America's gone through from its roots already you know it, it's not that far fetched to believe that something like that could also happen so I, I definitely believe in all that and I think that's that is happening okay but on a more sort of metaphysical level or, or you know on on why they can get away with this. In other words, a hundred years ago, could you even get a guy like Obama to become president and do what he's doing? I don't think so. So the question is, why have uh, your average American become so complacent or indifferent or even active uh, in this sort of Islamic cause? And uh, my belief is it is diametrically um, connected. I'm sorry, not diametrically. It's just in integrally connected. It's It's a counterpart of the sort of Western secular atheist hostility to Christianity. You know, to put it simply, it's a sort of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, you look around and you see all these groups that you would think would be at the forefront of uh, being critical of Islam. Homosexual groups, ultra-liberals, uh, you know, you name it, feminists. And what do they do? They're defenders of Islam. They whitewash it. They support it. Okay, now why is that? I personally believe it's because their ultimate uh, foe is Christianity. It's a Christian heritage, Christian culture, because that's what they come from, and that's what you know. That's what touches them deeply, because that's their actual background. Islam, they could care less about. It's just another pawn to set up against what they really want to see go down, uh, which is essentially the Christian heritage. So I think that's another big and um, often misunderstood or not spoken about component that fuels so many of these. You know, liberal types who otherwise you would think would have nothing to do with Islam or want nothing to do with it, and yet they are amongst the most militant supporters of it. So in short, it's a it's a concerted war, and it always has been on Christianity from all these various elements. And in many ways, Islam is just one of the prongs uh, of this actual attack, and it's being used by other groups uh, of people. And, and I, I mean, I know this is the sorts of things that uh, you all talk about, and there's obvious truth in all this. Um, so that's what I'm seeing, you know, this idea that, I mean, what other civilization can you think of where the people of it hate and despise their ancestors? And yet their ancestors have probably done more for the world than any other civilization. I mean, that, there's a riddle for you. You know, I mean, any if you get an Arab or a Muslim or an African or you know, an Asian and Chinese or whatever, they venerate or their, their ancestor, they're proud of their history. And usually there's not a whole lot there to go on. And then you turn to the West, which did so much in, in the realms of whatever you name it, science, discovery, and so forth. And yet their descendants are just so disgusted 
of their ancestors. And so you have to ask yourself, what is going on in this particular civilization? And to me, the answer is, it is an intentional war trying to, you know, this concept of secularism and atheism and liberalism, it's just another, these are all different names trying to distance uh, this nation and these people from their spiritual and heritage and roots. And it's a just constant demonization, um, including uh, of the history. And that's why I was saying at the beginning, when you talk about the history, uh, it's, it's, we've, we're, we've been presented with a history that is the exact opposite of reality. And that's intentional because they're trying to make everyone here hate their own heritage to break away from it and to, and to distance themselves from it. And I believe this Islam thing is, is definitely a part of that concerted effort. Doug, do you have any questions before I ask him my next one? No, but I do want to come back at some point to the, the, that list you're talking, you, you referenced, because I think that's important, especially today, because, uh, um, when I say that list, uh, um, the, uh, it's important to, to, to you, it's important to me, it's important to a lot of other people out there listening, but, but no, at this point, no, not, not, not at all. Yeah, do you have it, the list, Doug? I, I, I don't. No, I don't. Okay. And not in front of me, no. I, I will pull it up, but, but Raymond, here, here is something that I, I think needs to be addressed. Just as the, as the women, let's say, embrace Islam, and I'm, I'm sorry to be blunt, but I don't know how to wake people up. Do you believe, and, and if this is too, like, <clears throat> Uh, uneasy for you to answer, then just say pass on that. And, and I'm not trying to set you up, and I just don't do that. But one of the things that's amazing to me is the brutality of, you know, and especially it's being introduced around the world, and even uh, people in the United States want to brace it. Do you believe, if they, I'll be very delicate, if the female actresses and all of the revolutionaries who are female would have to stand in line to undergo uh, female genital mutilation, do you think they would hold to the same uh, ethos that they're now trying to defend out of what I would call not only arrogance, mind control, and just the, the revolutionary mindset, the spirit behind it? You know, I mean, if you contrast the, the way that Jesus liberated women truthfully and honestly, and, and nobody, and I said this, and it makes the feminists crazy, nobody did more for women in the world than Jesus Christ. Nobody. So if, and just real simple yes or no, or you want to qualify it, but if they had to step in line to undergo that procedure, do you think there might be a little bit of uh, defection from the position they hold out of ignorance or mind control? I think if they were forced to wear a hijab, they would defect immediately. I mean, I think, in other words, I think they're just hypocrites. They're grandstanding hypocrites uh, who do, who don't give you know a fig about women's rights uh, because women under Islam are treated like uh, chattel. And in fact, the uh, Quran says that. Uh, in fact, there's another. There's one particular verse that tells men, "Your women are like fields, so go plow them however you want." Uh, so. Of course, they wouldn't, you know, and, and they're just hypocrites. Either they don't know the first thing about Islam, they just know it's not Christianity, therefore it must be, you know, nice and exotic, or they do know and they're just, again, it's it's a way of, uh, you know, juxtaposing and challenging Christian mores and showing them as inferior, uh, and you just praise something like this. So, of course, they're just, they're, they're, all of them are hypocrites. They would, genital mutilation, give me a break. None of them would go through female circumcision. Um, and if they did, well, why don't they? 
You know, it's just a matter of grandstanding, just typical liberal bull, essentially, and, and without even knowing what they're doing, or worse, knowing and just doing it in spite of that because they have their own nefarious agenda. So basically, the agenda is at the at at you know just forty five minutes or so into this uh, interview. The the point is is that they hate Christianity and they will link up and sync up with anything and everything that is bent on destroying. So obviously, the devil's behind it, the Antichrist. Anything is the spirit against Jesus Christ is the spirit of Antichrist. But even more than that, the whole presence, if you will, of a culture. That's embracing suicide. I call it the kamikaze culture, okay? Because in essence, we are consider, we are committing in this country the end of everything that we believed in, that we've uh, uh, been taught, that our forefathers fought for and died, and that incredible word freedom, that incredible word liberty. And and you know, it's not the Christians saying you got to believe like us. It's basically the Muslims saying believe like us or you'll die. And then and then of course when they're not killing each other off, you know, you have the Shia and, and you know, that whole thing, uh, you know, the two Muslim sects. So at this point, if, if, if the, you know, I think, who is it, the evangelicals, or uh, not the evangelicals, but the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, are all embracing radical Islam and, you know, the, the entire, in my opinion, world of what confesses or professes itself to be Christendom in an open-door policy, I mean, that's like inviting somebody who's going to pour poison on your meal to come to dinner, turning your back and saying, oh, didn't you bring me something good for dinner? I mean, you know, the concept, and because, and in the next, in the next hour, we'll get into the sword and the scimitar, and you can lay it out, but the point is, the bottom line, Americans, America, and Americans are allowing, not everyone, but even the leaders in the highest realm are not being honest and taking on, if you will, the fundamental basis, not not talking about the fruit of evil, you know, I'm talking about the root of evil, the two faiths are incompatible, are they not? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and a lot of this goes to, you know, the, the, there's all these philosophical isms, you know, I call them isms, uh, who, that have just so fundamentally uh, warped, you know, the American or Western worldview. And one of them, of course, is relativism. You know, you can never, there is no more absolute, there is no more truth, there is no more right and wrong. And so no matter what Islam does, well, you have to see it through their eyes, you have to understand it from their mentality, and so forth. Whereas, you know, a, a previous uh, Western person from an earlier generation would just immediately go, that's, you know, wrong. I forget, you know, what was his name. I think there was a, a, a British general in India. And when they told him, well, you know, it's our, it's our custom to burn a woman with her husband when he dies... He said, well, it's our custom to shoot a man who does that. Okay, but you're not going to get that anymore here because now you're supposed to be. Yeah. That that should be applied in its fullest extent, you know. Exactly. Uh, is it legal for us to, uh, you know, kill our wives in honor killings? Uh, no, and if you do, unfortunately, you'll go to your great reward before your wife, if any honorable man would have it. And see, this is, this is something, too. I'm sorry, this is my pet peeve, the 150,000th one is that people stand by and and give intellectual assent or or, or they divorce themselves intellectually from cold-blooded murderous and brutal uh 
slaying of men, women, and children, a baby being beheaded by some animal, and 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 I would call I wouldn't call her Angela. I'd call her Animal Merkel. Just basically passes it off. And everybody in uh, Great Britain, we've got listeners in Great Britain. You know, not everybody, but it seems like the power brokers are absolutely embracing it. Sweden, Norway, and we'll get into that. But the point is, is that I mean, what in your opinion? And we're going. We got a couple, just a couple minutes. What in your opinion is it going to take, or do you believe it will even happen that the West will wake up, or is it already too late? I think it's going to have to get a whole lot worse uh, before it could even get better, because the damage has really been done on a on a very spiritual and intellectual level. Uh, you know, I mean, just common sense is gone. Absolutely, it's out the window. Uh, you know, other more robust generations whom you know we would scoff at and call backwards. Uh, would be able to handle this and deal with it very easily. But uh, here, intellectually, I think people have been so just completely jarred and jaded that it's it's very hard. I mean, look at it. I'll give you one quick example. Look at a country like Sweden, okay? I mean, here's uh, the descendants of those, you know, great Viking warriors who just would not brook any nonsense. Of, uh, and now Muslim in, migrants are brought in and they're raping their women and sometimes their men. And uh, nobody's able to do anything about it. So I think a certain paralysis has also uh, infiltrated into the, uh, the, you know, the body of the society, where uh, it's not just a matter of I have to be tolerant, I have to, you know, turn the other cheek, not in a Christian sense, just because I'm a coward. I think that sort of thing has become so uh, pervasive that people are literally paralyzed uh, from moving, as you see in Sweden and a lot of other Western, you know, Britain and Germany and so forth. Um, so I don't, I think, of course, you know, I don't want to be so dismal, but I think there could be a resurgence, but it's going to take a whole lot, you know. I mean, look what's happening right now. This, who would tolerate this, you know? I mean, go back some generations to the way people used to think when they had common sense. Who would tolerate any of this? None. So, I mean, just as it is right now, it's already ridiculous and nothing's happening. So, uh, you know, you had 9-11, you had all the, or all these other attacks and so forth, uh, attributed to Muslims and, and nothing happens. So what more? I mean, if there's a if there's a bombing, a terrorist attack in America, and a hundred thousand people die, what's going to happen? Uh, we're probably going to get a lot of, of leaders telling us, oh, don't don't jump on the don't you know come to don't attack Muslims because they're innocent. Those are just terrorists, and and then the news will be all about Americans uh, being angry at Muslims, and Muslims are the victims, and this sort of thing. So I don't know what it will take, uh, but I think it's going to take something big before you have an actual major movement. Yeah, we're about, uh, let, let me just double check here. We're, we're actually past it. So, you know what? Let's just, let's just skip the break, if that's alright with you, with both of you. Uh, on a roll and, and this is critical. Here, here, I want to say one thing, Raymond, and then, uh, by the way, do you, uh, do you, uh, Mind being Ray, you everyone I know calls me Ray. <laughs> okay, well, everyone I didn't want to do it. call me Ray, so go ahead. Okay, yeah, I want to be respectful because I, I admire you. I absolutely uh, read everything you write. I try and post everything I get my hands on yeah, that you write. But much. here's the thing that people have to understand. This is a war. It is not uh, something you get to, you know, just come in to, if you're feeling like it when you get off of your, your uh, easy chair or lazy and, you know, go to the fridge and you just all those poor people over there. We sat back, ladies and gentlemen, and watched 
tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians slaughtered worldwide. And the pukes, and, and this makes my listening, or people that listen to me, those who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ, only those do I call pukes in the pulpit. There are men and, and women of God that stand stalwart. But those people that deny this and deny it's happening or deny it can happen here, and look, look at the, if you will, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or the white uh, Catholics, and, and you're getting probably only three countries that are standing up against it. You're getting Czechoslovakia, po or the Czech Republic, Poland, and Hungary. If I were going to move any place, and I mean this, I'd probably go to Hungary because I so admire their president. And, and and yet, people don't even understand the history. If it weren't for those countries, everybody would be listening to the most beautiful call in the world, quote unquote, Barack Obama. What's that called when they go and you know call to prayer? There's like there's oh yeah, the, it's the muazzin or the muazzin, yeah, yeah. And so so if everybody wants to put it into perspective, this is total, and this is mine. Don't get mad at Raymond for this. This is totally horse manure that people won't see the wicked fruit of a wicked root. And I'll quote one other quote, is that, watch what I will do for Islam. Barack the entity Obama. And by the way, when I say entity, I want to define that. Do you know what I mean when I say entity? That means something other than human, okay? And even, I think it was another radio program, I don't remember which one, Doug, but, uh, you know, the, the host said, uh, uh, you know, uh, he's a demon. And, you know, Obama addressed that. But most people forgot he's the one showing people his charms in his pocket. One of them is Hanuman, the monkey god. This is who Hanuman is that stands between heaven and earth. So when you're dealing with superstition and you're dealing with the occult and you're dealing with the end time war and you're dealing with the spirit of Antichrist versus the spirit of a living God, the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, it, it cannot be a recipe for anything other than the ultimate end time war. And and so now let's talk about, if you wouldn't mind, now first of all, the Before, scimitar, Steve, is, it, is it out right now? August 28th uh, is coming out. Yeah. August August uh, 28th, I believe, is the yeah, date. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's coming out, It's uh, yeah, it comes out uh, August 28th, but people can pre-order it right now and they'll get it right, right when it comes out. And I, and, and folks, I pre-ordered that today as, as well. So I would urge everyone to pre-order Sword and Scimitar, um, uh, forthwith, because if it's anything like, and I know it is, like, uh, uh Raymond's uh, previous books, it's going to be fantastic. I just have one question since Steve brought up the talisman. Uh, Raymond, I, you probably have gotten this question all the time and in, in the, in the scheme of things, it's probably of very little relevance, but, uh, I just, out of curiosity, um, I'm sure you've you've seen the uh, controversy with respect to uh, Obama's ring, uh, his so-called um, Islamic ring. I recall you... that it was about what three years ago. Yeah, yes, and there were photographs and enlargements of mm -hmm. it. Uh, my question to you is that what um, Dr. Jerome Corsi and others have said? Definitely an Islamic ring with uh, uh, either parts of the Shahada on it or uh, some other type of Islamic writing. Not, not that I'm actually, really. I'm, I'm actually looking it up because uh, okay. I, I remember seeing a picture of it, but uh, I just want to yeah. take a good look. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I and mean, those look like Arabic writings. Um, it does, doesn't it? That could be saying the Shahada. La, 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 la. I mean, there, 
it doesn't look like straightforward Arabic. It's kind of camouflaged, you know. Okay. So that's All why right. I mean, if someone argues and says no, it doesn't say that it's a design. Okay, but I can definitely see how it also is a is a is a sort of cryptic uh, shahada. I understand. All right, and again, in the scheme of things, it's probably not that critical. However. Uh, since uh, Steve brought up the talisman, oh, yeah. and, and and I think it's it's uh, it's really critical, Doug, because uh, would you define uh, how do you pronounce the word dimitude or diminitude? Yeah, then, well, it's actually a coincidence that the two words sound so much alike because they actually mean the same thing. Uh, one's of course English and one's Arabic. So the Arabic word, uh, well, dimitude is an actually it's it's a it's a newly minted coined word that was uh, that was coined up. A lot of people think it was Bat Yor, but it was actually uh, the uh, Lebanese, I think, president or prime minister who was a Christian. Uh, because as you know, Lebanon is half Christian, half Muslim. And at, at some point in the 70s, I believe, or early 80s, he said, you know, we're not going to go back and beca- we're not going to embrace the Dimmi too. Anyway, it's based on the Arabic word, Dimma. Uh, Dimma, I know it's hard to pronounce. Uh, uh, you can just say Dimmi. Um, and what that word means, um, is based and it's it's pivotal to Islamic Sharia or Islamic law. Uh, the the root meaning of the word is someone or something that's blameworthy. Okay, it's it's blameworthy, it's culpable, and it has to somehow make restitution. So when the historic Islamic conquest, which we'll get into, happened, and uh, uh, non-Muslims were conquered, primarily Christians, but also Jews, who are both defined in in Islamic lore as the people of the book or Ahlul Kitab uh, if they wanted to keep their religion they were allowed to and they became dhimmis which basically means they are blameworthy because they're infidels who refuse to embrace Islam and therefore in order to stay alive and practice their religion they had to submit to a whole bunch of stipulations um, all of which to a great degree were meant to degrade them uh, and, they're, and they're, there's your diminution Okay, so not only did they have to pay a special tax but when they paid it Sometimes they had to go through a ritual and get choked, walk on all fours. The tax collector, who's a Muslim, would choke them and slap them and yank their beard and tell them this is the price for being an infidel and this is what allows you to live amongst us and so forth. And then, of course, they didn't, the rights they had were nothing. Uh, you can't build a church. You can't have a visible cross. You can't have a Bible out anywhere. You can't have a church bell, uh, let's say for Christians. Uh, you can't proselytize. And then all the opposite, of course. If someone wants to proselytize a Christian, he can do it. Um, the value, the worth of a Christian's word in a court of law is half of a Muslim. So if it's uh, if a Muslim and a Christian are in a court of law and the Muslim accuses a Christian, he wins by default just because he's a Muslim. So you have, and that's just the beginning of it. You know, I mean, there's a Christian had to get up from his seat and offer it to a Muslim if a Muslim wants it, and that kind of thing. You know, this dimitude, and that's a good word because it really does describe it, still exists today in the Islamic world uh, amongst Christians constantly. Uh, you know, they can't build churches, they can't have crosses visible, they can't have bells. Uh, once they're killed, abducted, raped, they can't, they have no recourse to the law because the, the police and the authorities are Muslim and they don't care. And oftentimes they even, uh, they even work with the perpetrators of the crimes and so forth. So all of this is still alive. Um, but there is, and I think maybe this is what you're looking at or, or, or trying to touch on, there's also the concept of Western than me too. Now, this is a strange animal to me because on the one hand, traditional historic dhimmitude means you are a Christian under our power 
and now you have to live as a submissive person, a third-class citizen, and that's the price for you to stay a Christian, okay? Now, what's strange about that uh, coming now is a lot of people use the word dhimmi to, to describe Western people and their approach to Islam. So the charge is that a lot of Western people w are willing to basically, you know, submit themselves and kowtow to Islam and appease Islam. And uh, as you see in Europe, you know, conceal their crosses and not offend Muslims by celebrating Christmas. And this, uh, So this is a sort of unnatural dimitude that, you know, strangely is uh, enforced by the Westerners onto themselves because the Muslims who are, of course, in Europe or wherever don't have the power to do anything about it, whereas the Christians under Islamic territory or conquered territory had to, you know, had to live that way or die or pay the, pay the consequence. But it's strange to see Western people who've taken on this mentality of always needing to appease Muslims and, and you know, make, sac make their own sacrifices not to offend Muslims, which is exactly... <laughs> and, and, of course, Muslims expect that <laughs> and so it's like a perfect uh, you know uh, harmony muslims come and they want infidels they're used to seeing christians in their own territory uh you know being submissive and then they come and they're the minority and then all of a sudden they find the majority is doing the same thing and all of that by the way just breeds contempt for the record and i can tell you that for a fact all of this sort of appeasement you know let's do this so they can like us only breeds absolute and utter contempt and and Muslims despise the people who do that. You know, I mean, and, and we can even talk about this later when we look at the history aspect, but even the Crusaders, you know, the Muslims, as much as they hated and fought them, had great respect for them because they were kind of on the same level. You know, they both believed in what they believed, and they believed in their God and their scriptures and so forth, and they're both fighting for the same thing. So, you know, they're worthy enemies. Now they come, and all they see before them, all these Western leaders and media and all these people, uh, they don't believe in anything, and they're, you know, ready to give their churches away, turn them into mosques, anything. And somehow, all these Western people think this is this will make the Muslims like them. Sorry, it makes them have nothing but disgust and contempt for them. And they just exploit it, and they take advantage of it. And, you know, and that's, that's human nature. You know, when someone acts and grovels before you, it's it's not going to make you necessarily like them as much as have contempt. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, okay. that's why this is so... Yeah. Yeah, I want to interrupt you there. That's exactly what Trump, you know, there's a lot of the world that hates him. But one thing, you know, nobody else brought Kim Jong-un to the table. And, and look, here's the deal. And, and I'm sorry it's this way, but, you know, even the scripture says the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And we've got a guy with a backbone and, and Donald Trump, and I get a lot of flack for saying that. But look at NATO. NATO has been uh, tied by a belt underneath the milk cow and providing no money for their own defense and you know and they bust donald trump's you know uh, uh i gotta say this right they bust him all the time uh for you know supposedly having deals with the russians and yet as as the news headlines have stated you know 70 percent of europe is reliant on the or reliant on the russians or their natural gas and oil so what you're saying there is being lived out in the headlines that they only respect. Now, get into the Crusades, if you would, because in early on when I first started talking about this, and I did 20 years ago,
ago on talk radio and started generating flack and Doug will remember 18 years ago he was personally involved and and having to go into the city because there were a lot of people that were unhappy and wanted me dead and that's how Doug and I got friends and we had a thing called the HQ in Eggman Quail HQ Intel Alert but share the crusade story because I get so tired of saying that and you know this it's a nanny goat answer that Christians started the crusades and and they killed more Muslims than the Muslims killed Christians you know I mean oh. and, and I'm sorry but that's horse feathers so will you deal with the crusades the, the length of time they took place and what's wrong with that embracing the bottom of the enemy and 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 you know giving a, uh, I guess you'd say a northbound borough a southbound kiss of the enemy because they that's the most tactful way I've ever said that that is that's critical that people understand that go ahead Raymond Absolutely. So before I start with the Crusades, I have to give a little more context because in order to really appreciate what the Crusades were, which is what you're saying, we got to go back about 400 years earlier. And that's exactly what people don't do. And that's why the Crusades are often presented in a vacuum. And then they, and, and in that context, the Europeans appear as the, uh, aggressors. So now we're, we're, we're actually really touching on the topics of my book, which is actually fine because now I'll start from the beginning. And I'll just give you a quick summary, and then we'll get into the Crusades because they're because they're more they're more important than most people think, but not for the reasons that people think. Okay, so in six, uh, you know, we were talking about Muhammad and you know the doctrine of loyalty and enmity and jihad and you know tribalism, and so instead of tribes fighting each other, now they're fighting for Allah against the other, who is basically anyone who's not a Muslim. Okay, so in the seventh century, when uh, after Muhammad Muhammad dies traditionally at 632 A.D., and now you got uh, all of Arabia. After you know some uh, two years of what's called the Ridda Wars or apostasy wars, and here's another you know anecdote that few people understand. After Muhammad died, so many of the Arabs who were basically nominal Muslims, because that's uh, you know you you just you say the Shahada become a Muslim if you want to get some part of the plunder and if you don't want to be at the end of Muhammad's sword. So once he died, like a majority of them just left and said, okay, you know the jig is up, it's over, it was a good run. Now we're out. So the first caliph, Abu Bakr, wouldn't have that. And he launched all these wars and in Islamic historiography, they're called the Ridda. Ridda means apostasy. So basically, these were the, this is the first major war of Islam, and it was against apostates. That is, Muslims who didn't want to be Muslims. <laughs> and literally, tens of thousands of Muslims were butchered, crucified, and burned alive to bring them back into the fold of Islam. Now, once that was done, and to keep their raiding spirit uh, alive and not to attack each other, then the great conquests of, of history happened, and they went forth. Okay, so um, <clears throat> after one of the major battles, which is one of my chapters, it's called the Battle of Yarmouk, which was actually my aforementioned master's thesis from 20 years ago. After that battle in 636 AD, <clears throat> basically the Roman Empire, or what we call the Byzantine Empire, started crumbling in the east, and in basically from 636 until, you know, 700 A.D., okay, all of North Africa and Southwest Asia were conquered permanently uh, by the sword of Islam. Now, it's, now, here's what people don't get, you know. If you go back into the 7th century, all right, and you talk about Christendom, because now Christianity has been around for over 600 years, all right, and so what was the Christian world? If you took a map and you looked at the Christian world at the dawn of Islam, in let's say around 630 AD 
It was in Europe, basically, uh, you know, uh, you know, west of the Rhine, south of the Danube, that area, including Great Britain, and then all of North Africa, okay, from Morocco, and I'm giving them their modern day names to Egypt, and then Southwest Asia, or basically Syria. It was known as Greater Syria, but you know, modern day Syria, Lebanon, Palestinian territory, uh, you know, um, Iraq or the western portion of Iraq, and of course what we call today Turkey or Anatolia, Asia Minor. Okay, now that was actually it's if you go back into church history and church uh, and, and Christian history, the heart of the Christian world was there. It was in North Africa and it was in Southwest Asia. You had five Christian seas or basically centers. Only one was in the west, and that's Rome. All other four were in the east, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, uh, Egypt. Okay, so in the first 100 or less, actually, well, I'm sorry, about 70 years after Muhammad dies, three of those centers are permanently conquered forever by Islam, and that's Antioch, Jerusalem, um, and Alexandria. And obviously Jerusalem's not forever, because now you have the uh, modern state of Israel in charge. Okay, but so all that area is swallowed up. Now, what you got left is Europe, and then in 709 A.D., the Muslims enter Europe uh, into through Spain, okay? And this is such a sad chapter, because every time Spain comes up in the context of Islam, we get this big story about how wonderful Islam is in Spain, and the golden era, etc., etc., and, my God, take a good look at the primary sources, as I have, written in Latin and in Arabic, and it's just bloodshed, it's ISIS, think of ISIS on an exponential level, okay, it's just pyramids of heads, burning churches with people in them alive, enslaving women, raping them, and, and the whole nine yards that we're accustomed to, okay, that, that, that is Islam's entry into Spain, you're not going to hear that from most people, um, I watched um, some well-known, I don't know, some woman who made a documentary about, you know, Andalusia, as they call it, and she literally, in, she just said what I said, but all she said is, Islam uh, was introduced into Spain in 709, or 711, I'm sorry, and um, and then before long, it, it, it was, you know, it, it, it flowered, and everyone wanted to be Muslim. Okay, that's just a big lie. What you had in Spain is what you saw in Syria and Iraq recently with ISIS, except on a much larger level. Okay, anyway. So you move a little bit forward, and now we're in 732 A.D., and you got the Muslims in France, or basically Frank, Frank, the, the, the lands of the Franks. You know, they were known as the Franks at the time. Gaul, basically, Roman Gaul. So now you get all these Muslims there, and, you know, everyone's heard, or anyone who knows anything about history has heard about the Battle of Tours in 732, or Poitiers. And basically, Charles, Charles the Hammer stops the Muslims, and they go back. It was actually, it wasn't that easy. He did beat them at, at Tours in 6, 732, but they were there for decades uh, on the Pyrene Mountains, uh, on the border of Spain, constantly uh, waging raids to the point, and few people know this, Muslims were actually got to the point that they were in Switzerland for decades uh, in the 900s, waging raids to abduct people for slaves. Because, uh, and I show this in the book, in Sword and Scimitar, um, habitually, the Muslims from the East always uh, not just wanted slaves, but they always wanted white, fair, blonde-haired, uh, uh, blue-eyed, green-eyed slaves. They wanted European slaves. There was a thriving market 
for European slaves, and they were mostly gotten from this from Spain into France, and also um, from Anatolia and into Byzantium and so forth. And I'll get into that. So that was one of the primary reasons. And you, I mean, how many people know that today that Muslims were actually perched in Switzerland of all places, and and waging raids all into Europe? Okay, and it didn't stop there. I mean, as we'll see soon. I mean, they got to Iceland. And, you know, how many people know about that either? Anyway, so eventually they got pushed back and they were confined to Spain, okay? And then in the east, Byzantium, which is really the, the continuation of the Roman Empire, which is hard, hardcore Christian Orthodox, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that was the nemesis of the Islamic Empire. So what you had is these Islam, Islam constantly bombarding Constantinople. But they had their big walls, you know, and it kept them going for 700 years. But eventually they took all of Anatolia in, in the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. Um, and basically I tell the story in my, in my book, by the way, around these battles. That's why I mentioned them. Because these battles are important and some people have heard of them. I mean, everyone's heard of, you know, tours and the Siege of Vienna and so forth. But what I tried to do is really show you the context. Because when you hear it, it's, okay, it's a battle and one group wins. But when you see the context... I mean, these people in Europe, these Christians, were really fighting for their lives. It was, you know, a matter of life and death. It was just, it was, think of ISIS, just, you know, to the 10th degree. And with like, you know, three, four hundred thousand people invading with swords on horses and, and doing this sort of thing. So this was a life and death sort of thing. Anyway, they eventually took Anatolia in the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. And that date's important, 1071. You know why? Because the Crusades were called in 1095 as a absolute direct result as what, uh, to what was happening after that battle in 1071. So what was happening? After the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, all of Anatolia, which was one of the... I mean, that's where St. Paul wrote his letters to. All those churches were in Anatolia, or what we call Turkey today. It was one of the most ancient Christian regions. And after the Muslims conquered that region, it was just a continuous bloodbath for decades, for, after 1071, for, for years until 1095. And that was the reason that Pope Urban II called the Crusades. So today the Crusades are presented as in a vacuum. That's what I was saying. The Crusades are just a bunch of greedy white European men who are just doing what they want. They're going to the Middle East. I guess they want oil. Uh, I guess, even though they couldn't, you know, they couldn't harness oil back then, but you know, it's that mentality. No, if you look at the sources, those guys, and they were kings and princes and nobles, they made, uh, especially I would recommend the writings by Jonathan Riley Smith, okay, one of the best known modern historians, he's, he's deceased right now, and also Thomas Madden, but <clears throat> they've shown you by looking at the archives that all of these princes and kings who went crusading made a huge sacrifice. They actually sold land, they did this and that, and they sold it cheap just so they can raise armies, and it was all done in the context of providing succor uh, to their fellow Christians in the East, and also for liberating the uh, the tomb of Christ, the sepulchre uh, in Jerusalem. Those were the twin aims, continuously preached, and that's why they went and they marched for thousands of miles, and they died from starvation and from Turkish arrows and from plague, and they continued and they continued just so they can bring, uh, as I said, relief to the indigenous Christians of the East, and also to uh, liberate the sepulchre or the or the tomb of Christ as they called it. Okay, now, let's move back to... So, so that's my introduction to your question about those big, bad crusades. All right, well, now when we hear about the crusades, it's in the vacuum, isn't it? 
we're always told, oh yeah, these guys, as I as I was saying, you know, these evil, big, bad white guys went and ruined it, and the Muslims were so nice and friendly. And no, that's what's going on. If you look at look at the writings of Princess Anna Komnena, uh, and she was the daughter of the Byzantine Emperor Alexius when this was happening, when the First Crusade was happening. Continuously, she writes about literally hundreds of thousands of Christians in the East, in Anatolia, being butchered alive and being burned alive and being enslaved and being raped and crucified, and thousands of churches being burned in, you know, in Armenia and all these regions, Georgia and so forth. Um, and that's the context that's no longer available. And that's why, you know, that's why, why I want to write this book to bring it out. It's not available now. What, what you hear is, oh yeah, they just decided these crusaders to go there. Well, they went there, and what's interesting is, so now let's, you know, compare and contrast with today. These guys, you know, for all their faults, who went there crusading, these men sacrificed so much, it's hard to imagine. They sacrificed their land, their titles, their families. Most of them died, and it was all to fulfill Christ's commandment, two commandments, which is, you know, love your fellow man as yourself and love God. And to them, loving God meant, you know, uh, liberating the sepulcher. Uh, and their fellow manners, their fellow Christian who was being killed and tortured and maimed by Muslims and enslaved. That's why they went. Now, this heroic story, which, you know, it, it, it's so, it, look at, look at what, look at the sacrifice these men went through only to go and provide succor. And this is what I'm trying to show you. This story has now been turned into these are the evil bad guys. These are the horrible people that Western Europeans of today need to distance themselves and hate and we have to be more uh, and Saladin, oh Saladin what a wonderful tolerant guy even though his uh, dying wish was after I repulse the crusaders I want to go into Europe and kill everyone who does not embrace Islam you don't get that part or the part that he used to in, uh, in Egypt because that's where he was based he used to uh, cover every church with tar and break their crosses and crucify Christians that part's always missing when we praise Saladin and, and, and his wonder uh, but so now you're starting to see, and I'm going to stop now. But now you see how this story of the Crusades, which is actually a story of faith and sacrifice, has been turned into a story of greed and evil. And, and there, to me, is one of the kernels and one of the one of the keys to understand how far the West has gone. That they turned one of you know a great story into a horrible story and a story for them to be ashamed of. And that's why they're now kowtowing and trying to please Muslims. And at the same time, the Muslims are only finding contempt in that because at least they could respect the Crusaders because they were worthy adversaries. Well, I think, too, one of the most important issues that people have got to understand is we are seeing in uh, Erdogan, are we not, the call for, he's the one that made the statement, and, and I guess everybody in the State Department needs to sit down, and the U.S. Pentagon needs to sit down and listen to a replay. Islam is Islam. There is no such thing. And it was a Muslim head of Turkey that made that statement, and now he wants to be the new head of the total caliphate, you know, over all the Middle East. And and isn't that a dichotomy? You know, I don't know if Turkey's a seated member in NATO or a, a invited member of NATO. I, I don't know the actual answer to my own question there. But does not it surprise you that, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun? And now, just as the great tyrants in history have risen, you know, to 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 draw the holy war, didn't he just call all Muslims worldwide to make war on Jerusalem? <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned the Solomon Ecclesiastes thing, because actually the epigram for my book 
is that verse. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. What was will be. What was done before will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, and that's what we're seeing. And and this business about Erdogan, this is actually a perfect segue to continue what I was talking about. Because after the Crusades, what you had is the rise of the Turks, the Ottomans. Okay, and this is actually going to shed a little light on why uh, you know you were talking earlier about Hungary and Poland and Slovakia. These countries seem to have a little more common sense when it comes to Muslim migrants and so forth. And that's this has to do with this this history I'm narrating, which is the Ottoman Empire. So with the rise of the Ottomans right around you know 1300, uh, the Crusades basically all the Crusaders are expelled by 1300 from the from the Middle East. Uh, the last kingdom to fall is Acre. Okay, so then before you know it, you got the Ottomans now who rise from the ashes of the Seljuk Turks in, in Anatolia, which is conquered, and now they entered now they enter into Europe from the eastern door into the Balkans. They go in, and before you know it, Constantinople, which had been able to withstand Islam for about 800 years, um, now it's surrounded uh, Thrace and 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 parts of Greece and uh, Bulgaria, giving them again their modern day names, are totally taken over by Islam. Okay, and now what's interesting to me is, uh, you know, if you look at the writings of a historian today, uh, they'll mention this, and they'll talk about the Ottoman Empire, and they'll talk about the Moors in Spain, and they'll talk about, you know, the Saracens and so forth, but the, what they won't do is tie it together, and they'll always present it as these are different disparate groups, and they are from a historical temporal point of view, but they won't show you the ideology that was common to them all and why they acted the same way, so... When you look at the sources of what the Ottomans did, it was exactly what the Arabs were doing over a thousand years earlier, which is giving people three choices: uh, submit to Islam, be a dhimmi, you know, pay pay the tax, or die. And that's what they were doing in Eastern Europe. And so um, Serbia got conquered after the Battle of uh, Kosovo. Um, Hungary, huge parts of Hungary were conquered. Poland was continuously raided, and this sort of thing goes on. And and actually, let me just interject something real quick because you know the West gets lambasted often about the cons the slave trade, right? Well, few people realize that Muslims in just these particular last decades um, or centuries that I'm talking about, just from you know from the 1400s to the 1700s and three centuries, at least five million Europeans were enslaved in the name of jihad all around Europe, but especially in the East. I mean, the word Slav is based on slave, because to be a Slav, an Eastern European, was to be a, Muslim, a slave of Muslims, because that, that, that was their hunting grounds, and, and including Russia as well, by the way. And so, you now, and then, you know, it, this goes on until 1683. I mean, I started at, you know, the first battle was 636. We're now in 1683, and that's the year that the largest Islamic army of all time ever entered Europe and invaded, and that was the Siege of Vienna. Literally two or three hundred thousand Muslims came and surrounded Vienna, and that you know, I mean, I won't get into that. That's a whole long chapter and, and, and story. But so now, you know, Vienna actually and, and the Polish king came, uh, John Sobieski, and he was able in a war to relieve them. But when you look now, uh, we were talking about okay, you got countries like Germany and Britain and Norway and Sweden who are very naive apparently towards Islam. Then you got these eastern countries, right? And they're not. And a lot of this, I mean, is 100% based on this history because the, the public has this living conscious, this living memory about what exactly happened to their ancestors and what it means to live with Muslims. And that's why you see this. But, of course, here in the West, it's often demonized. You know, oh, the horrible president 
of Poland or the horrible president, you know, Viktor Orban of Hungary and so forth. But when you really look at what they're saying and doing, it's just common sense. It's people, a Christian people and a Christian identity who are trying to preserve it against those who would actually destroy it and who are openly saying they would. And that's really the reality of it. But here in the West, all that is distorted. And, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do uh, with this history. But I've spoken much now, so uh, I'll well, stop. I mean, let's take the, con- yeah, the contemporary Netherlands. You know, I mean, yeah. they, they basically, they have a, uh, if you will, an Islamic party there. And the guy basically said, and in no uncertain terms, he said, convert or get out. Okay, here you have strangers telling those who have a history of living in their country to get out. That's coming to America. It's already happening in many of America's cities, citizens, excuse me. It's happening in America's cities, and it's happening on a government level. You know, the appeasement, the appeasement, I believe, okay, is what I call primal surrender to the devil's uh, front, uh, what do you call it, the, the advance guard, okay? Appeasement is primal surrender to Satan's advance guard. Now, again, and the new, uh, I forget the young man who, and he's young, who's become, is it the president or yeah, president of Austria, he's basically having a, what I would call a, a historic reality check, and he's saying, we got to stop the immigrants. And, and again, let me ask you this. As you see Angela Merkel, and you see, you know, obviously Britain, Britain has totally, if you will, I, in my opinion, they've surrendered to Islam. They are an Islamic nation now. Even when you've got the head of the, what is it, the, the um, oh, uh, their head church, you know? Um, yeah. What Anglican. is it called, Doug? Huh? Hey, the Anglican? Or, I mean, yeah, the, the um, Anglicans. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Embracing Islam, wanting to turn so many of the cathedrals into, and you know, it gets into this too. I forget. You probably know the name of the uh, of the uh, mullah, Muslim mullah, that said, "Our women's womb will will be the ultimate weapon that we." Uh, in essence, repossess the West with. And, you know, do you deal, I mean, I, you know, I have no idea every place you speak, but that's literally being fulfilled. Um, you know, if you will, the white Anglo-Saxon uh, people and, and whites all over, now they're vilified. And isn't it interesting that the very, you know, the very heart of blonde-haired, blue-eyed women, you know, known for their beauty, knowing for being blonde and blue-eyed, Scandinavia, they have... I guess what I'm saying, Raymond, everything you just uh, uh, stated in history is is not only repeating itself, but for those who seem to like uh, uh, movies and all the different, you know, videos, etc., they basically are watching an instant replay of why the Slavs uh, are called slaves. I didn't know that. Thank you for that. So, I mean, it, it is, it's beyond insanity. It's demonic uh, reruns. And that's exactly why, you know, I say, you know, moving forward to the big questions of today, you know, why this is happening is, it, it, it's just, it's all one concerted ever effort against the kingdom of Christ in the world, in the now. And it's being infiltrated on so many levels. You know, you have the obvious level, you know, you got the beast, <laughs> or as I call it, as Islam. Then you have the, you know, the, the scarlet whore. The, you know the one that seduces you, which might, which I might call, you know, secular atheistic Western civilization, and the two work together in union, and they have one, you know, goal, which is basically the destruction of Christianity. 
Um, and we see this in so many ways. And when I see a Christian who's like, oh, yeah, I love Islam and blah, 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 and I want to do this, well, that's, you know, it's another reflection of of the damage that's been done, but in a different way, and that's why they're working together. It's all one concerted effort in my eyes. Um, that's it, it, There's no other way to understand it, how groups that claim, oh, we don't like Christianity because it's so draconian and patriarchal, and yet, you know, we're ready to, you know, side up with Islam, which really is draconian and patriarchal. I mean, the only way to understand this riddle is that this is ultimately and fundamentally a war on Christ and Christians, um, and it's just being done in unison. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, no matter what they believe or what they think. And that's, I think, what, what what we're seeing today. And that's why, you know, for all the, all their faults, when you look at the records of these early European Christians, you know, Orthodox and Catholic, at least they had a sense of identity and a sense of faith that they were able to, you know, risk life and limb, and so many died in these wars just to preserve their heritage. Um, you know, I give them that. So, but today, what do we got? We got people opening their borders and saying, "Come in and rape us," and you know, we'll stand by and appease you. I mean, that's, that's downright Christians demonic. going to prison. Yeah, Christians yeah. going to prison for speaking out against it. Is is it? I know there are uh, you know scholars like yourself that have called for dialogue, but dialogue to a a uh, mullah is just basically uh, what I would call uh, subterfuge. Because the point is, and, and at the and at the bottom line, I know that's re, or the fruit of it or evil. I'm sorry, the root of it all is, is that we are in a war, and that war is, in my opinion, this is the end times leading up to the final war, and we're seeing right now, you know, everybody used to say the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire is, you know, the ten nations, blah, 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 and I rejected that, you know, 20-some years ago simply because I don't think people understood the spirit of the day. It doesn't mean that, you know, the apostate Roman Catholic Church is is getting a pass. It just means that, you know, I made this statement, and, and I want to get your feedback on this, is the uh, the Pope of Rome, who's supposed to have infallibility, has said more loving and kind things about the Quran, even kissing it, and he belittles Jesus, he belittles a personal relationship with Jesus, he basically said there's no such thing as personal salvation, it's through Rome, and and, and your take on that, in, in my opinion, okay, if someone was to be, and Doug here, you can chime in, if someone's to be uh, judged on a court of law by evidence presented, this guy basically is making uh, more excuses and praising Islam while denigrating biblical Christianity. Is that your take, Doug? Perfectly well stated. Well stated. And Raymond, yours? You're talking about Francis, right? I'm talking about, no, I'm talking about about the current Pope. Yeah, Pope Francis. Yeah, Yeah. oh, absolutely. I mean, I've written so much uh, criticizing uh, this particular Pope. Um, and, you know, and I, I and I am cognizant of your position uh, with the Catholic Church, and my thing is, which is actually an agreement, uh, uh, is you know, throughout history, you have the layman who many times, whether he's Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, is a good Christian, and then you have the higher ups. I agree. Ups who, I agree with that, who, by the way. Right, I agree with yeah. that. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing that at all. Yeah, and the, but but I also agree that the higher ups could have very uh, nefarious plans. Um, these popes and so forth. You know, I, I agree with that as well. This particular pope, the things that he said are, you know, are just absurd. I mean, when when the concept of jihad came up, he said, well, you know, don't forget, 
Jesus uh, also commissioned the apostles to go and make, you know, to preach, and that could be also interpreted as a jihad. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's definitely, you know, trying to whitewash and kowtow and and be friends with Islam, and I I don't see any call for that at all. Um, so I have, you know, this particular pope, I I I think Benedict, I like Benedict. You know, he was honest. He actually, you know, was a little bit critical about Islam. He cited history and so forth, um, but. You got a lot of these guys who are up there in the clergy, in the hierarchy, in the Vatican, who I'm in agreement with are actually involved in some pretty negative stuff. Um, having said that, of all the denominations, and I know you agree with that, you know, I mean, if you look at, if it wasn't for Catholics and Orthodox, because of course there were no Protestants until, you know, almost 1600. And if it wasn't for, you know, those people, Islam would have overrun Europe a long time ago. And they were, they right, were the and, and I want to say this too. You know, I know, and I'm, I'm going to go on record because everybody thinks I'm a Catholic basher. Couldn't be further from the truth. I believe that laymen, especially, even when the Catholics had the charismatic movement initially, okay, and I was around during the Jesus movement, man, there were people, and, and typically it was the people. And I believe that when the next great outpouring in the midst of the worst persecution comes, it'll be in the streets, it'll be with the people. Because God, you know, hey, uh, you know, God's not impressed with temples built with men's hands. And I'm, I'm just saying this, that we're, we're talking about a battle going on for human lives. And this is this is the thing. The same nation that allowed, what, 60, 70 million little innocent lives to be aborted, and now nothing, you know, you get these fruitcakes, and it isn't even the holidays, you know, running in the Democratic Party. And by the way, I agree with Michael Savage. Liberalism is a mental disorder, okay? I do not even believe it is a human condition apart from supernatural evil influence. Now, that may frost a lot of cakes, but then maybe the cake that has the frosting on it's rotten to begin with. Nobody wants to go and have a vanilla frosting on a, uh, what would you say, a cake full of maggots. There's another <laughs> metaphor. But the point is, is that, you know, I mean, what does, what does, and where is the, look, the big mega churches have, have absolutely surrendered. They won't speak out or only in passing. Neither did the Pope, and I believe the Pope is an entity, okay? I do not believe he is a person. My definition of an entity is when the human spirit has so given over to evil that it no longer rules the body it inhabits. And I'll get a lot of flack for that, but there are, there are some wonderful, wonderful people. And, and, and look, there are some snakes in the grass in the every single movement has its, its fakes. But it, it, does it surprise you as being a historian? Does it surprise you? that the response of that which claims to be Christian has been so pathetic and even speaking up against the innocent slaughter of our brethren worldwide. And, and, they, and, and can I be blunt? They still will go, and it, it, to me it's, it's no different than the Lutheran Church, you know, when the trains were taken, different people, not just Jewish people, but Christians and gypsies and everybody to the camps, you know, and, and there really were death camps. And now again, you really believe that? Yeah, I believe 
believe that. I saw him. You know, so the point is, is that we're seeing, if you will, a complete abandonment of the faith. And based on the scripture that I see, you know, in the word of God, that the Christendom is given way to seducing spirits. And the bloodlust, I'll say this, the bloodlust of abortion has led us to where we are now. Because just as 60 to 70 million uh, innocent babies were slaughtered, and it's a sacrifice to Satan, even the Satanists call that, look at the sacrifice that's taking place because and I, I, have you heard my word jellyfishianity jellyfishianity <laughs> means that you go with the flow and if you've ever seen jellyfish if you're a diver different currents will take on a different form you know and and a jellyfishianity sure can sting but it can't do anything more than that meanwhile you have the stalwart drive ambition and going forth of a a philosophy driven by hell to destroy everybody who is not Muslim. And that's the bottom line. Even Erdogan said that. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve, I agree with everything you said um, about this pope. You know, I'll just compare and contrast him with previous popes, okay? So the Crusades, as I, as I was pointing out, were actually called by Pope Urban II specifically because Muslims were slaughtering Christians just like they are now, and destroying churches. Okay, that was the the reason that men took arms and made great sacrifices, and most of them died just of starvation and dehydration because they marched thousands of miles. Okay, so today the same sort of thing is happening. Uh, churches are being bombed and destroyed, and thousands. I mean, there's genocides of Christians as we speak uh, all around uh, the Islamic world, specifically. So, what does this pope do? Well, he writes an encyclical, and instead of even making reference to this, he talks about, you know, the environment and um, global warming, okay? So, to me, you know, whatever he is, this is not a, this is not a man who's representing God. This is certainly not, a, uh, you know, the Viker of Christ. I'll, I'll, I'm definitely in agreement with that. Um, but, you know, moving to this Islam thing and basically looking at history, the past, and the present, and, and I guess this is why it affects me, or, or I'm more sensitive to this, because when you really study the past, there's been such a massive shift between how Western people look and understand something like Islam. And a lot of it has to do, I believe, in a sort, in, in this basic, um, you know, uh, uh, infiltration into Christian teaching, which exists, I call it Western Christianity. And it could look, it could be Protestant or it could be Catholic, actually because they both do this. But it's basically this concept where we take half of Christ's words, which is basically to be patient and to forgive, and then we get rid of the other things. Or to put it differently, you know, it's okay if you want to love the sinner, which is which to me means basically to be forgiving or humanitarian or altruistic. But we've gone one step further now and now we love or that is to say ignore the sin. And Christ never did that. If Christ said turn the other cheek he also never lost an opportunity to point out that someone was sinning and they needed to repent. And that's the problem right now in the Western Church, which is basically, and it's due to this sort of relativism, which we can't even understand that there's something wrong. So not only are we okay in seeing these sins, these errors being committed, but we feel like we have to accept the sin itself. Uh, so it's not just, i got to forgive this guy because he doesn't get it. I have to actually allow the sin itself to manifest and to and to breed and I, I can't speak against it and I'm trying to figure out who in the Bible ever did that from Christ to the apostles to the prophets and so forth and that's why there's, we have this what I call doormat Christianity 
You know, it's it's okay to turn the other cheek on a personal level and forgive your brother, but it's not okay to try to create a social system where we're all passive doormats and uh, anyone who's not us, who's the other, who's a Muslim, who's exotic, gets to come and wipe their feet and we can't say anything. That is not Christian, that is not biblical, that's not what Christ came to teach. And and that's why to me these are all imposter churches, whatever denomination they are, whether they're Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox. Anyone who teaches this half message of, of, of Christianity. Amen. Doug, let me just ask this. Yeah, right? go ahead. How, Raymond, how do they, people get your book right now? I mean, they can. is it in electronic format available immediately, or is it the August date that Doug referred to? Tell people where to go. Sure. Thanks, Steve. The best way is just, uh, you know, you can either type the title, Sword and Scimitar, uh, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, and just type it in Amazon, and uh, it'll pop up. I, I think I'm not sure about the electronic, but I know the hardcover won't go out till August 28. But if you just order it now before you forget, <laughs> that's what I would do. That's what I do with books. You'll definitely get it right on August 28. And you know all this stuff that we discussed and so much more is documented. I have over 1,000. I think I have 12, 1,200 footnotes uh, to primary sources. A lot of these sources I translated from Arabic and Greek and Latin because they're not even available and they just show you the continuity that what you're seeing right now with Islam is 100% based on a non-stop aggressive history of nearly 14 centuries and the only break in the continuity it's not from the Muslim world it's from the West because the West or Europe or Christendom stood against it and was stalwart for centuries after two-thirds of it was conquered and they remained and the, so the discontinuity is what we're seeing in the present time which is this sort of uh, appeasement of Islam, you know, this demonic riddle that needs to be figured. But it's all there, and I, and, and I heartily recommend just go on Amazon, put it in, and it'll be available, and just order it. As a matter of fact, I just want to say, it'll be available in our program description box on YouTube, BTR, and uh, uh, YouTube and BTR, at least there, if not other places, both the hard copy, hardcover edition, as well as the Kindle edition, both available on August 28th, 352 pages with a forward by Victor Davis Hanson. So it's it's a fantastic, by the way, it's a fantastic read. Um, it, having a, a sneak peek, it's, it's it's so folks, please, uh, you know, understand the military history, understand the history of of Islam in, in the uh, 14th centuries of war between Islam and the West as it is. Written by Raymond Ibrahim. Uh, we only have, uh, Steve, we only have about, uh, oh, I don't know, about seven minutes left, so I'm gonna just turn it back to you and, uh, Steve, we can finish up. Well, first of all, I consider this critical. I quote all the time von Clausewitz on war, okay? If you look at that, that's huge. I think what, uh, Raymond has done in his scholarship and in his trying to get you to understand. Here's the thing. You cannot fight an enemy. I cannot fight an enemy until we understand the enemy. And if you've already surrendered, well, it's a peaceful religion. I've got to let bygones be guy bygones. Or let me say it in my terms. I've got to just let beheaders behead. Because, you know, after <laughs> all, and I, I just looked up, Ray and Doug, uh, Hebrews 12.4, okay? Uh, ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. That is the pacifistic uh, spirit that has taken over Christianity is anathema. And anathema, for those of you that don't know that, that means let it be a curse, cast it aside. It's cast aside. 
And so the thing is, is that I understand Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, other and or else would his disciples fight. But we're in the last stages, and I want to remind everybody that when you pray and you quote the scripture or the Lord of hosts, and, and the point is, is God always gave his people who stood against evil and slaughter, he gave them the victory if they sought his strength. And so I'll go on record as saying right now, if you do not understand what Raymond's book is about, The Sword and the Scimitar, and 1,400 centuries of this, you won't be able to stand against, well, you Christians slaughtered more people. And Raymond, how many people were slaughtered uh, by the, uh, just a, an estimate by uh, uh, Muslims during 14 centuries? Let me just give you a quick example about the Crusades. Everyone cries about, you know, when the Crusades conquered Jerusalem in 1099, they invaded it, and there was a bloodbath, and they killed, you know, uh, lots of Muslims and so forth. All right, now let's move back about 20 years before that. That was happening on a daily basis at the hands of Muslims, okay? For 20 years, there, were, there was a constant bloodbath. Now, you'll never hear that. It's always presented in a vacuum. You don't know that Seljuk Muslim Turks in the name of Jihad killed literally hundreds of thousands of Christians and enslaved more in just 20 years. You'll only hear that Christians went in at 1099, conquered Jerusalem, and killed some thousands. Okay, But if you want to look at how many people have died in the name of jihad, it is literally in the hundreds of millions uh, over the 14 centuries. Hundreds of millions. That makes, that makes Stalin, that makes, you know, Hitler, that makes all the great tyrants, I mean, Kublai Khan, Genghis Khan, I mean, that makes those guys look like pikers when it yeah. comes to murder. And I, yeah. I know those are historic figures, but you see, can I say something? What, what, who was it, Doug, that made the statement, you know, uh, a thousand lives lost or a hundred lives lost is a tragedy? I think it was Zygmunt Brzezinski, you know, or, or Kissinger, and a million lives is a statistic. That's really a true statement. People yeah. cannot grasp those, those simple words. Can they, Raymond? No, they can't. I mean... You know, look, in, in, uh, earlier I mentioned in, you know, you got 50 countries where Christians are being persecuted and 40 of them are a Muslim majority. Okay. Let's just look at one of them, Nigeria. In just the last six months, 6,000 Christians were butchered. Okay. And maybe massacred, you know, uh, beheaded, raped before they were butchered, burned alive, whatever, uh, uh since the beginning of the year. So basically on average, 1,000 Christians every month are being killed in the name of Jihad in just one country. Now, Nigeria isn't even ranked, I don't think, in the top 10 worst countries. So imagine the top 10 worst countries, what's going on there. And yet, you know, who, who hears about that? Who cares? Yeah, who cares? See, that's the bottom line. Who cares? And, and Jesus cares. And the same thing. I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, is blood guiltiness in the that which I call them Christian claimants, blood guiltiness is going to be something that all of the Christians must stand for. Now, stand before God and give account for. Because and, and here's the other thing. It's just like this. It's like abandoning children to a secular education system, and now secular education is teaching Islam. Isn't it funny? God, get out. Throw away the Ten Commandments and don't ever speak the name of Jesus. There's no name that terrifies evil more than the name of Jesus. So it's the Christians. It's one, it's, who, 
yeah, the Christians are the ones that are are rejecting the very Lord that saved them, in my opinion, by their denial, and they're trying to be politically correct, and they're well, cowardly cowards. Yeah, and it's sad to point out that it's because they're not Christians, you see, because the greatest yeah, weapon, you. yeah, the greatest weapon that Satan has isn't isn't a foreign entity, it's to infiltrate the church and to let so many millions of people think they're Christians and they're actually actively helping Satan's kingdom. Uh, Gosh, do I, we, do, do Stephen, yeah. do Stephen and I know that? Uh, I just, I didn't yeah. mean to punch in there like that, but, but you are so right. It's, it's the wolf inside the, uh, mm -hmm. or it's the, you know, wolf yeah. in sheep's sheep clothing. Yeah, it's, it's worse than all the other things, and it's what, I mean, real quick, this Islam thing, if you had rational people with common sense and Christian mores, would be over like that, okay? Because the Islamic world is fundamentally, militarily, economically weak. It wouldn't even be a problem. The reason it's a problem is because these Western elements are empowering it and bringing it in and covering for it and spreading it. That's why it's a problem. And that's what tells you the problem isn't Islam by itself. It's this other element, which is, you know, a lot nearer to us and a lot more camouflaged that's actually empowering it. Yeah, I would call it acquiescing cowardice. Yeah. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, we've reached the top of the hour. We, we, we've gone through two hours of incredible content. Steve, I want to thank you for handling this interview. Our tremendous guest, of course, Steve Quell from stevequell.com. Raymond Ibrahim, the Sword and Scimitar, available August 28th, pre-ordered now. I'm telling you, pre-order pre now. Kindle or hard copy, again, August 28th, not that far away. And, um, by the way, folks, while I've, while I've got you, Make sure you register for the Branson Conference now. With the seats going quickly, uh, registration is going quickly. Steve, you got about 30 seconds if you want to end it with that. We're down to a couple hundred seats available, and this is going to be critical because everything changes in the world when it comes to transhumanism, AI, and the hybridization. I would encourage everybody to go on gen6.com and register for the live streaming because, look, I believe that the tickets will be sold out probably in less than 30 days, most likely two weeks. But that doesn't mean you can't get the benefit of all the speakers, and we've got some of the world's leading speakers, especially on artificial intelligence. I just posted three stories, Doug, while I was listening to Raymond about how advanced AI is getting, artificial, and by the way, I call it antichrist intelligence, so people need to be equipped and armed. They don't understand history, that's why they're being slaughtered in the Middle East. They don't understand AI and the advanced technology, that's why they'll be slaughtered here. And the Amen. word for the day is slaughtered. Thank you, Doug. Hey, Raymond, God bless, God bless you. you, and thank you. God bless you, Steve. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Ibrahim. Thank you, Steve. Folks, network break. Give us three minutes. And welcome back to this third and final hour on this Thursday, July 12th edition of the Hagman Report. What a great interview that was. Uh, just fascinating stuff with, with Steve Quayle uh, leading the charge on that one. And so much information. I'm going to have to go back and listen to parts of that again. But we got a great guest lined up for you taking us out this uh, Thursday with Keith Hansen, who joins us for his regular Thursday slot. But we're, we're taking on an hour with Keith rather than a half an hour. So it's going to be good. But the uh, you know news of the day, uh, go watch, if you have not watched this, the exchange, a few exchanges during the Strauch hearing today at the, with the House Oversight Committee and Judiciary Committee 
there is Representative Louis Gohmert and his exchange with Peter Strauch, which was just uh, as soon as I walked into the to the studio, when I said, "Hey, you got to get in here and see this," and boy, it was that. Uh, uh, it, I guess that sums up that ten minute segment sums up the atmosphere, uh, the attitudes of just about the whole hearing, from the interruptions to the the anger, the frustration, the the arrogance, the sarcasm, uh, and, and just the the circus that it had devolved into. Uh, that piece summarizes it nicely. But anyway, let's bring Keith. Wait, wait a second. The, the, look, the sky is is uh, green. The grass is white. Well, no, that could possibly be. But yeah, it's exactly know, right. The, you know, the, he the, turned the black, grass. white, black, and white. Yeah, black yeah. It, it, it's it, oh, oh it, stop it already! It's, it, shut your flipping mouth! Because every time he opened his mouth, it was nothing but a flipping lie. And the smugness, I want to smack that hubris off his rotten little face. I'm telling you, what what a gonad this guy is. A left gonad. And as Louis Gohmert said, had the uh, audacity to not only uh, come in there and lie to Congress, but also uh, knowing that Congress is knowing he's lying, doing and, and, it with a smile on his face. And, and while I'm at it, and, and forgive me, Keith, for taking up your time. While I'm at it, okay, had I been sitting in that in that chamber, okay, <laughs> you know, I look, I know, I'm almost sixty years old. All right, no one's going to elect me to Congress, but if I was a congressman, I would have got up from behind there, and I'd been slapping some congresswomen, Sheila Jackson Lee, for one. That 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 that. Whatever that thing was from New Jersey, I'm I'm not sure how to describe her. Okay, um, and and a few others, so I would have been slapping them, and, and you know, uh, and, and then taking taking out the uh, Peter Struck Batman. That 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 seriously. When are the American people going to say, "All right, enough. I've had enough of this crap. I've had enough of the lies. I've had enough of this. We're done. Let's let's water the tree." With the blood of patriots and tyrants. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. When are gonna, when, what's it gonna take? What is it gonna take for people to say enough? Enough of this lying. But it, where's this all going? I wanna know. Where, where, where's it gonna go? Struck lies. Page doesn't show up. No one is ever held accountable. And it's starting to really get my goat. All right. What say you, Keith? I say you're pretty fired up this evening. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's about a quarter there. Oh, man. Did you see in, in rare form. Did, did you watch that uh, that circus today? I mean, any part of that? No. Oh, my. No, oh, I didn't. Uh, no, I didn't have a chance to today. Kind of uh, working on stuff behind the scenes today. So. All right. Well, my blood pressure medication. I had to get a refill on my blood pressure medication because it was just like, you know, uh, it's just, uh, honest to goodness, the, the, the arrogance, the, the, uh, treasonous arrogance, the fact that he damaged this country, the fact that he damaged the FBI, the fact that he is so smug to the, to, to Congress, and Congress is basically a powerless entity doing nothing. It's just, it's just, it, you know, what point do we, do we rise up and say enough of this crap? I, I, I did see a couple of pictures come out where, I mean, you could see the, just the utter contempt and disdain on his face. Um, just, Absolute smugness, um, but you know, I mean, these these are people that think that they are they're above the law. 
These are people that feel that you know. It's, it, I think it's I think it ex, it's an extension really of the of the Hillary mentality, which is well, laws are for you little people. You know, you're you're the ones that have to go out and and uh, you know you you have to be constrained by law. But but the, but those of us that are you know in the the ruling class elite, no, no, these these this doesn't apply to us. I mean, think about it. That's 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 exactly how Hillary has conducted her affairs ever since the White House. And, and really beyond. Um, so why would we expect that, that these people would be any different? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and, and as I calm down and um, stop sputtering and, and stuff, you know, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's, it's this multiple system of justice that that, uh, that has really relegated us to a third world nation, I believe. And one of the things in the Strauch uh, hearing during the exchange with Trey Gowdy, he talked about the multiple levels uh, and people that were over him of oversight to make sure you know if he were to do anything wrong well there's these people above him at multiple levels that were there to stop him but who were those people james comey who was fired andrew mccabe fired they were in on it there was no uh, buddy above him that that was willing to to say hey you're not doing this right your your bias is showing you're breaking the law whatever it was there was no accountability and there is no justice and until that happens we're not gonna gonna rest Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, you know, a, a big part of it was everybody right up to the FBI believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And so, listen, you don't, you, you don't operate against the grain because when what you perceive to be the inevitable happens, well, then, you know, obviously people who were treating her favorably will be rewarded. And when she's now in a position of power, those who went against her will suffer the consequences. They'll face her wrath. So it kind of makes sense, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, she, was, it, she, was supposed to win, she was supposed to win that election. You know, everybody, everybody, everybody thought that she was going to win that election. Um, and, and that was hers. It was hers to win. And so, unfortunately, this interloping anomaly called Donald Trump came along and has just set, well, I mean, at least the United States of America, uh, on its, on its, on its head here. It's, you know, um, I mean, the, the, the left is, the left is falling apart right now because, again, they have no control. You know, and, and, you know, somebody had said it, I was, I was in a conversation with somebody earlier today and they said, so basically, they were paraphrasing what I was saying. And they said, so basically, the left is experiencing what we felt for eight years as conservative Republicans. And I said, yeah, but the only difference is that we didn't come completely unglued after 500 days. You know, we had the, we, first of all, we had the morality, we had the ethics, we had the responsibility, the tenacity and the wherewithal to actually be able to realize that there's a process and we could see this process through. And once that process was seen through, albeit eight years later, you know, that's, that's where we had our, our due and just reward. So. Yep. yep. And, and you know, you mentioned about, about us. What I thought telling was after Peter Strzok gave this ridiculous opening statement about about uh, claiming that his anti-Donald Trump texts reflect his deep patriotism to America. <laughs> we, there was actually a contingent of liberal of liberals that applauded his opening statement. And, and that told me everything I needed to know right there. I just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, so, all right. Yeah, well, you know what? Keith Hansen is is our guest, and he's uh, yeah, he's he, he's the only conservative voice in the northeast part of 
the United States in, in New England, 99.7 WNTK. We're, we're so happy to have him. By the way, folks, you listen to him online. Go to, uh, in fact, uh, on Twitter, uh, real, uh, real Keith Hansen, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, at, at, at Real Keith Right, okay. Yeah. And uh, it's got so many comments about uh, people who listen to uh, your show, our show. So where do you want to take us tonight, my friend? Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the state of affairs, whether it be the hearings or anything else, any place else that you'd like to go? Because there's just so much to pick from. Um, I don't know. I mean, besides the hearings, uh, what else is on your radar? <laughs> well, you know what? Look, look I, I think the way the hearings fit into the larger scheme of things, as I, as I say during my morning show, what we're saying to me, and, and just briefly, and you, you can select any part of this. Uh, this is part of a larger, I mean, each, for example, the hearings, Peter Strzok, the uh, Lisa Page contempt, uh, she's going to be facing contempt charges perhaps, but what does that even mean? But all of these things that we're seeing are pieces of a larger puzzle. That, that bigger puzzle, of, of course, is the attempted takedown of our nation. That's my view. Okay. So, which is still in progress. So we're watching a coup as well as a cover-up concurrent in progress. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is the biggest story of our lifetime. And, and, and to get people to pay attention to this, to me, is frustrating because either because of the complexity and the, the multiple angles of it, they don't understand the enormity of it, or it, it, they're only looking at one piece of it as opposed to the entire picture like you understand it and we understand it. So that, that's, you know, I, I, that's kind of the entire thing's on our radar. But but it's all, all of these disparate things or seemingly disparate things are part of the larger puzzle, and that is the ultimate takedown of the United States of America, the, the multicultural, uh, the uh, uh, cultural warfare that's going on, and the fact that, uh, and I think you had mentioned this too about uh, the you know, no modifiers before the word socialist and socialist, demo, uh, socialist, democratic socialist, socialist, communist, they're all the same. So. I mean, they're all cut from the same mold. I mean, they all like to call themselves different things depending on who they're pandering to. But the bottom line remains that they're, uh, you know, that they're, they're, they're they're cut from the same cloth. So, you know, I, I had a, I had a conversation with, uh, with, with somebody in the White House today. Um, I'm not going to mention his name, uh, but you will meet him, um, uh, just because I, I, I just don't want to mention his name. Uh, but you'll meet him at the, uh, uh, Hold Their Feet to the Fire radio row coming up in, in September. But I asked him, I said, uh, he, he had reached out to me. He needed a, a, a contact with, with one of our former state politicians. So, um, just in the context, I said, hey, well, I got you on the phone. Let me, let me ask you kind of what your, what your take is on, on what going on um, he's a, he's a journalist uh, and one of his uh, co-workers was assaulted on the steps of the Supreme Court uh, during the uh, Kavanaugh protests and uh, he was he was assaulted uh, this individual not the not the not the gentleman in the White House but his co-worker was assaulted after uh, he was asking a number of people what Roe v Wade represented uh, and it was a woman, actually, and uh, she she slugged him. Um, you know, after uh, he turned away from her because she could not answer what Roe versus Wade was. She had no idea. You know, he asked him point blank, "What what what is Roe versus Wade?" You you have these signs, Roe versus Wade, and so I mean, she she obfuscates and pivots and and she can't answer. And he says, "You don't even have a clue why you're out here protesting," and turned. To, to you know, to, to talk to somebody else, and that's when she lashed out and, and punched him. So I said, you know, given the fact that this happened, where do you see 
things right now. And uh, he said, you know, I, I wonder whether or not, um, you know, Trump is going to be able to win a second term. Uh, and, and that kind of took me by surprise. I, I, I kind of pushed him a little bit and said, well, you, you know, why would you say that? I mean, the, the economy is doing well. There's, there's tremendous confidence. Uh, you've got a significant number of Americans that are looking at their paychecks. They're seeing more money. Um, and I think they realize that life has gotten better in, in such a short period of time. Uh, you know, you saw what life was like in the steady deterioration uh, under eight years of Obama and even prior to that with, uh, with, with Bush. And he said, well, you know, yeah, but the last couple of years of Obama's presidency were, you know, the, the economy was on the uptick. I said, well, okay, but the trifecta was broken. He says, well, you know, you got a point there. Well, of course, because, you know, there was, uh, you know, there, there, there wasn't a democratic control of, of, of the House and the Senate and the presidency. Um, so, you know, and it always seems like when the, when the economy is in an uptick, um, that's when, you know, the, the control of either the House or the Senate or both winds up going over to Republicans. Um, so, I mean, at least it was an attempt to try to stop the, you know, the speeding locomotive of progressivism under uh, Barack Obama. But the point being is that he said, you know, there is this, this growing wave of anti-Republican, anti-American sentiment that uh, he questioned whether or not there are sufficient numbers of people that can actually stem the tide if you get somebody popular, you know, like uh, he was saying, like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, 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 I found it kind of a little bit out there, but I just I found his perspective because, I mean, he works in the White House press pool and he's there on a, on a daily basis. Uh, I, I found his perspective to be... Um, just a, a little bit more than just cause for reflection. Let's put it that way. Um, well, Keith, you know, it's, it, it, that's very interesting um, because as much as we see the disproportionate amount of media coverage that is negative toward President Trump and his supporters, I saw a great meme the other day. They showed an iceberg, which about 5% was above the water, 95% below the water. The 5%, they say, it represent uh, what the media tells you, how many supporters of Trump there are out there. And the 95% that you don't see was the actual number of Trump supporters. And I believe that that's more true than not true. And I believe that the left's insanity as far as this pushing of, of abortion and, and illegal immigration uh, and perversion and transgenderism, that they have driven any moderate Democrats and most independents uh, to President Trump, not to mention all the minority votes he's been picking up and the walk-away movement. I just see this, the Democrats in a tailspin. Again, no identity, no no leader, no new ideas, nothing to help the American yeah. people. And everything that Trump has done, whether you like his personality or not, I just don't see when they're ready to pull that lever that they could vote for anybody else but Trump, even if they were on the fence before that. Well, and I, and I agree. And the common sense analytical side of me, here's what you are saying realizes that that's exactly what I'm saying to my listeners on a daily basis. And so it, it, it causes me to lean back and reflect and say, how is anything other than the re-election of President Trump uh, on the horizon? But, you know, then again, I've, I've also learned not to establish foredrawn conclusions because anything can happen. Um, and, and 
I do think you're going to wind up seeing unprecedented amounts of, of, of uh, attempts of voter fraud. Uh, yes, I am one of those crazy conspiracy theorists who believe that there are people up here, especially in New Hampshire, um, who are uh, from out of state and voting. And the reason that I, I, I maintained uh, that belief is because I have a, a good friend, Ed Nail, who is the head of the Coalition of New Hampshire Taxpayers. He's also a private investigator, and he has dossiers on literally dozens of people who are serial out-of-state voters who come in here, who try to claim domicile, who use an out-of-state driver's license. There were 5,400 and change uh, voters uh, who used an out-of-state driver's license that six months ex post facto still had not registered in the state, moved to the state, obtained a, a New Hampshire driver's license. Um, so there's there's over 5,000 individual voters um, that uh, Ed's been able to, uh, to distill all the numbers down to um, that are questionable at best. And, so, and that's just one know, area, and one, one small area, yeah. Uh, you know, now, of course, New Hampshire is, is considered to be a, a, a key state, uh, certainly. We're the, the first in the nation in terms of the primary. So, uh, I mean, besides the Iowa caucus, you have the Iowa caucus, then you have the New Hampshire primary, and so all eyes are on the state here. Um, and, you know, when you look at the number of them, I'm, I'm just looking at some of our state candidates here. Um, you know, we've got uh, both our, our congressional districts are up for grabs, Congressional District 1 and 2. Um, we've got some good, solid conservatives in both of those, but there's some really big money right now that is flowing in. And, uh, I mean, at least here in New Hampshire, uh, the last time the finances were checked, the state party here in New Hampshire had a $36,000 deficit. They were negative $36,000. The state Democratic Party here in New Hampshire was up to the tune of about $226,000. So they are out fundraising significantly. Uh, the GOP here in New Hampshire. And when you sit back and look at the, at the filings, you see a tremendous amount of dollars coming in from out of state. California, Washington, D.C., uh, and New York specifically. In fact, the, the state senator, uh, District 8, which is where I happen to be, she's actually going to be on my program tomorrow, Ruth Ward. Um, fantastic woman. She did a great job. She clobbered her, her competition, uh, two years ago, but now she's got some big, big New York City money. That is trying to buy her seat. Okay, okay. Where, where's I, I know where it's coming from, but but who's it coming from? This money. Can we track? Can we track the money down to any specific group, person, entity? Um, just curious. Uh, yes, we can. As a matter of fact, and if you give me about two seconds here, sure, uh, sure. I can actually uh, while we're chatting, I'll pull it up. Our guest is uh, Keith Hansen. Okay, all right. Our guest, as you know, folks, is Keith Hansen, ninety nine. Point seven WNTK at and, real Keith Hansen. at real Keith Hansen on Twitter and the fact uh, I got to tell you too the uh, it's it, the only conservative voice at least in my view uh, it may, maybe that's a tad hyperbolic but uh, as far as I can see uh, up in the New England area and I want to clear something up too when I said about watering the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants and, and and patriots, you know, that was not a call for violence, okay? Anyone listening to that? But that's my assessment no, of just, so just funny to be that clear. you say that. Just to be clear, because I were going to get emails. On the Daily Show the other day with Stephen Menking when he was on, I said, you know, Stephen, we're talking about all these problems and all these institutions, and, and we can't talk about problems without talking about solutions. So how do we start? Do we take 10,000 people and go into 
every major media organization and to de- detain every worker or go yeah, into the Capitol. Yeah. And, he, and his first response was, you well, can't you know, we're not advocating well, you for uh, yeah, this. Yeah. I said, no, I'm talking examples here. You know, like, uh, if we were going to try to fix right. it, well, it would be the best way. We're not talking about doing anything. We're just, but he was very, and I understand that mentality. But so, at yeah, this point, yeah. I'm with you. Like, I'm not. But 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 no one. Uh, just to be clear, no one. Look, I don't advocate anything except offensive violence. All right, y- 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 y'all know what that means. Yeah, protective, uh, self-defense. Right. So yeah, I mean, somebody comes after me, it's going to be violent at least for the first five seconds until I need a recliner. And after that, you know, the guns come out. So uh, okay. So all right, go ahead, Keith. Uh, tracking that money. All right, so uh, $63,000 in campaign contributions for Jennifer Alford Teaster, uh, a first-time candidate running to unseat uh, Ruth Ward in New Hampshire State Senate District 8. Ruth Ward, uh, who's at about $14,000 in change. Um, and so, I mean, I've, I've got names here. Um, Elizabeth Alter, New York City. Uh, Jacqueline Bispeeve, New York City. Sean Busey, New York City. John Dawson, Palo Alto, California. John Delaney, Potomac, Maryland. Uh, Glenn Crevley. And we're, we're talking about donations wow. that are $1,000 to $2,000. Okay. Uh, you know, Manhattan, another one, Sarah O'Neill, Manhattan, Matt Russ, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Karen Sporkin, Woodbury, New York, uh, Craig Starn, Norwalk, Connecticut, Aaron Wells, Washington, D.C. Uh, and then, I mean, the money that's coming in from within the state, uh, it, it, it literally is like the who's who of hardcore progressives. Um, Martha Fuller Clark, uh, $10,000. John Garvey, who was the person that ran against Ruth Ward last year, uh, $3,000. Um, you know, the former New Hampshire State Senator Peter Burling, he's, he does a regular hit on my show every, every Monday, and I, I ribbed him about this one. $1,000, uh, Democratic State <laughs> Senator Dan Felt, $1,000, Democratic State Senator Martha Hennessy, $1,000. Um, I mean, they are pumping money. Now that's, I mean, those are in state, but the, the other names that I was listening to, Manhattan, Norwalk, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Spartanburg, South Carolina, and of course, with all of her campaign expenditures, uh, you know, she, uh, she's got campaign expenses at Reagan International Airport on April 27th. Um, you know, she's got uh, multiple Uber charges May 7th and 8th in, in New York City. Um, you know, so, you know, she, she, she works at, at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center here in, uh, in New Hampshire, but she's reporting, you know, uh, all of these expenditures down around Washington, D.C. And, you know, why are all these out-of-state people so interested in, in, in financing uh, state Senate seats here in New Hampshire. It's because progressives are trying to to, to buy the seats. There, there's it. no question about it. Yeah, yeah, and and thank you for pointing that out because people don't. I I, I think there's a, still think there's this disconnect where people don't get the fact that uh, there's money coming from everywhere to uh, to to a location like that, for example, in, in your area where, um, yeah, it's it's money talks apparently and. Hey. And I want to ask you this, Keith. We saw earlier this week, Monday, Tuesday, I believe it was, uh, new articles of a, of a rejuvenation of a potential 2020 Hillary Clinton run where, and I actually read an article that, that summarized how she could act, how she could win the primary just based on name recognition and past experience and blah, 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 blah. And I thought about that for a little bit and thinking, my first thought was, you know, that'd be the biggest present to, to, to President Trump that the, the Democrats could give him. But then oh, I thought, you know, the amount of people who are willing to commit uh, felonies and, and voter fraud and the amount of voter fraud that they did last election, 
would that be possible for them to to make sure they get it right this time? And I started to think about, well, maybe it wouldn't be good for her uh, to run again. But what are your thoughts? I mean, even Bernie Sanders, they, they seem too old. They seem way too out of touch. I don't think anybody. Uh, we could have a weekend of, week, weekend of Bernie's moment with Hillary or a weekend of Hillary with Bernie. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, the, the the conversation that I had with my friend of the White House press pool today, we were talking about that, and he said, I said, what do you think the chances are we'll see a 2020 Hillary run? The DNC wants nothing to do with her. Um, I hope so. She's, she's toxic. She's toxic to them. Um, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what she's going to do is she's going to come out and try to lend support uh, for, you know, for the, the progressive candidates that are running. But um, I, well, like I said, I mean, listen, I, I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I'd be playing the lottery. I wouldn't be working a, a day job. Um, sure as hell, I wouldn't be getting up at 430 in the morning. Uh, you know, but that being said, anything is possible. Could she run it? Absolutely. The woman has got an, an all-consuming ego of, of just legendary proportion. So is it possible? It's entirely possible, but I think she'd have a pretty rough go of it not having the support from the DNC. And and to be honest with you, I mean, really, when you look at it from a, from a national standpoint, um, the Democratic National Committee right now really is rudderless. They don't have a candidate. They, they don't have somebody who's galvanizing. Um, the people that they have are, again, hardcore leftists that really exemplify the creeping incrementalism of socialism and Marxism into our, our American way of life. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't see it happening. But again, there are people out there who, I mean, who are literally entrenched in this stuff who are saying, you know, it's, it's, it's more possible than what you give it credit for. You know, so I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, we have to know, watch Perez, though. We have, Perez being the head of the DNC, Perez, is a, in my view, is a snake and a hardcore uh, communist. Uh, um, Tom Perez is is going to have to rally the troops to, to to get a viable candidate for 2020. But I digress. Go but, ahead, but sir. Who are they, but who are they going to have? I mean, they're going to they put, put Bernie in there. Uh, you know, I, know. I, I mean, that, I know. Would be, that would be pretty interesting to see. I think uh, I, I think Donald Trump would absolutely wipe the floor with Bernie Sanders. Um, I mean, this is a guy who who doesn't understand basic economic principles. Um, he's certainly not going to go up there and, and be able to, to, to uh, unless they're just going to continue to run on this this narrative, um, you know, that somehow capitalism is evil, the United States is an imperialistic evil force, uh, and that it needs government intervention to uh, to control the winners and losers and to artificially control the the equality of outcome. See, and, and that's, but but something struck me the other day too when I was thinking about this. And you mentioned this; they don't really have a viable candidate. It's almost as if they're not concerned because 2020 will not be an issue for them. And I, when you start thinking backward a little bit, or maybe putting a tinfoil hat on, maybe they don't believe Donald Trump is going to be a factor in 2020. I, I don't know. I just that's what the Cortez uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez said today. Uh, she said that uh, she doesn't think Trump would make it to 2020. He won't yeah. survive till 2020. That was whatever her words. that means. No, it's yeah. kind of interesting from a veiled threat perspective, but uh, yeah, that's certainly. something that we've come to know and expect and love from our our our, our democratic friends. Um, but uh, you know, when, you, you, just getting back to the money thing for a second here, you know, we we were talking about the uh, uh, you know, the voter fraud and the fifty four hundred uh, votes that were cast by people who used out of state driver's license that never solidified their residency, their domicile here in the state of New Hampshire. And you got to remember, there's a big race between uh, Kelly Ayotte and uh, former Governor Maggie Hassan for the uh, uh, for that Senate seat. 
Yep. That was a race where it was $125 million was spent. <laughs> Jeez. I, I can't even... Seriously. <laughs> Maggie, Maggie Hassan, former Governor, Governor Hassan, raised $70 million. $51 million came from super PACs, and $19 million came from campaign fundraising. So uh, when you when you look at that, I mean that's that's eighteen million dollars. Nineteen, well, yeah, eighteen eighteen point four, if you want to get specific, came from campaign fundraising. But fifty one came from super PACs, like the Senate Majority PAC, seventeen point two million dollars. The Independence USA PAC, four point eight. The uh, AFSCME Union PAC, two point eight million dollars. The Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, whoever the hell that is. million. Now, that's just on the Democratic side. When you look at at Kelly Ayotte on the Republican side, $56.9 million spent on her side, $37 million from super PACs, and $19.5 from campaign fundraising. So the Republican PACs that were giving money to her, Granite State Solutions, $21 million. The GOP Senate Committee, $7.2. U.S. Chamber of Commerce, $3 million. End Spending Fund, $2.9 million. John Bolton Super PAC, $850,000. But at the end of the day, one U.S. Senate seat from New Hampshire, $125 million was spent. And that race was lost, I mean, well, won or lost, depending on how you want to look at it, by 1,017 votes. That's how close it was. Interesting. All that for a job of a yearly salary of, what, $150,000? No, well, yeah, I mean, it's not that much. But the power behind it, I mean, that's what it is. And and that's, uh, those are eye-opening numbers, Keith. I mean, unbelievable. But but the, the closeness of the race... What's that attributed to? Um, it's like Hillary Clinton. She spent over two billion dollars on her presidential race. Had all the help from the media and Hollywood and everybody <laughs> in the rigged. world. She lost it, and she still lost it. So, well, I mean, look, look at look at look at uh, Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush spent a hundred million dollars to lose abysmally, you know, in the primary. So, you know, just because you're throwing money at the problem doesn't necessarily mean it, it it's going to be a winner. And that was kind of the beautiful thing was watching Trump. Uh, you know, it was it was kind of the the May West approach. Any any publicity is good publicity, and Trump was able to ride that wave of free publicity and and spend very very little of his of his own money or even his campaign money in the primary. Most of the exposure that he got was just because it was Trump being Trump. You know, but uh, yeah, exactly. you know, I, I, again, one thousand seventeen votes is what it separated. Now, one thousand seventeen votes is what the Republican candidate lost by. There's fifty four hundred votes that were cast in that election that were cast by people who can't be found in the state. Okay, so, <laughs> so, state so what do we do about license. this? Okay. Well, you know, it's 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 very simple. It's I think it's very very simple what you do. Very simply, if you are voting with an out-of-state driver's license, and somebody proposed this the other day, I think it's a brilliant idea. If you if you're voting with an out-of-state driver's license, then what you do is you go to you go to Staples and you get yourself a fifty-nine cent one-hole punch, and you punch a hole in that driver's license, and that says to everybody else, you use that driver's license already to vote. Because if you're telling us, well, hey, you know, I moved here, I just haven't had a chance to, you know, I, I plan on making New Hampshire my home, 
then, well, why shouldn't you? And, and this is for every other state uh, it, it, you know, as well. If, if you're moving to a state and you're planning on making that state your permanent home, well, then, you know, your state laws dictates that you've got to have a driver's license in about, you know, probably uh, anywhere between 60 to 90 days, depending on, on what the state statute is. So if somebody shows up there to vote, great. Number one, you punch a hole in that driver's license, so that way there, if they try to go and vote someplace else the same day, it's clear as day. They've already voted. And somebody says, well, that's going to prevent them from voting in the next election. No, it wouldn't, because no. there's not going to be another election between 60 to 90 days. They should have had enough time to be able to go and get a driver's license that establishes them as a bona fide resident in the state that they're claiming is their residency, is their domicile for the purposes of voting. Yeah, okay, okay, that's fine. But is there anything of that that could be done investigatively for the retroactive, obvious, uh, um, the the obvious uh, fraud that was committed retroactively? It's, is there it's, entirely, it's, it's entirely up to the attorney general's office, and that's exactly what the the coalition of New Hampshire taxpayers has been trying to do: is to get the attorney general's office to go after these people. But the attorney general doesn't seem to have any interest in doing that. Wonder why. <laughs> Wonder how much yeah. they got. You know, to look it's the other incredible. way. Well, so okay. it, it's amazing. You know, I mean, you get you get cases, and 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 basically, what winds up happening is they get null prost. What what's the what's the point? You know, I mean, the, yeah. the the whole purpose of the criminal justice system, as I see it, is to provide clear disincentive to engage in behavior that is proscribed statutorily. If you behave in this, if you, in this fashion, if you, if you c conduct yourself in a manner that is proscribed statutorily, then there are negative things, there are negative consequences that you're going to experience. But it's simply enabling a person and people are laughing at it. It's like the state of Vermont. You know, it, with the, with the bail reforms over there, you get, you get an 18 and a 19 year old sister are, are stopped on a, on a, on a major interstate with 3,185 bags of heroin, they don't even spend the night in jail. They get released on personal recognizance. So what is that? What kind of message does that send to somebody? What it does is it sends a message, at least in that sense, well, hey, Vermont's open for business, and you want to drive up here with, uh, you know, with, 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 you can take $5,000 worth of heroin from New York City, bring it up here, and triple your money. And, and, and what does the criminal justice system do? Does it disincentivize that behavior? Of course not. Does it send a clear message that if you challenge us on these laws, you're going to find yourself in a situation that's going to be very unpleasant that you don't want to be in? Absolutely not. And the same thing for voter fraud. There is nothing Precisely. that disincentivizes this. Nothing yep. whatsoever. And, <clears throat> and, and here's the interesting thing. Maggie Hassan's aide, the one that shouted F you at, at President Trump, her intern. Yes. Yes. Same thing, you know. She she wasn't a resident. She was working. Uh, she was she was going to school. She was working with uh, on the Hassan campaign, and she was going to school at at University of New Hampshire. So you know, did she use her dorm room? It appears as though she used her dorm room as her air fingers quote domicile. Well, you know what? If you're using your if you're if you're using your uh, your dorm room as your domicile, here's the ultimate question: Are you paying an in-state or an out-of-state tuition rate? <laughs> and so one of the things that one of the things that, that that the coalition of New Hampshire taxpayers is looking to do uh is to uh is to find out exactly what that is because what what at least what the director of that organization says is if we can establish that she voted using that claiming New Hampshire is her domicile 
Okay, well then, what were her tuition rates? Did she pay the, because if that's the case, the University of New Hampshire will go after her for the difference lump sum, which is exactly what should happen. Yeah, I mean, you can't have it, can't have it both ways. If you're, if you're either a resident or you're not a resident, that's the bottom line. Exactly. And so if you're a resident, you get in-state tuition rates, you can get an in-state fishing license or a hunting license, you know, or you're not a resident and and you can pay, you know, 50% more for your college tuition and you can pay 200% more for your fishing license and 200% more for your your hunting license. And, you know, that's how it is. But you can't have it both ways. And people, I, I, you know, I hear this from, from college kids all the time. Well, you know, I'm a resident here because I go to school here. Okay, well, what do you do during Christmas and spring break? Well, I go home. Oh, thank you very much. You go home. So you, you're not staying in your dorm room. You're going back to New York. You're going back to New Jersey. You're going back to California or wherever the hell it is you came from. So this is not your re- – and do you pay an in-state or out-of-state resi- uh, out tuition? Well, I pay out-of-state tuition. You're not a resident. Right. If you were resident, you would be paying in-state tuition. And how These do you com- have- how do you establish your, your in-state status? You have a driver's license from the state that you are claiming to be a resident in. And these are very common sense solutions to these kind of problems, Keith, and these not only need to be implemented in, in your area, but I'd say nationwide. And Obviously, state by state need to take responsibility for their own uh, election fraud and accountability departments, but these are some uh, excellent beginning ideas on where to start and how to... And, and as you said, there's no there's no... If you get caught, the you know voting twice, what would you get charged with? Is there a crime on the books for that, and what penalty does that carry? There and is, it, and I in in some states it's a felony. I, I would have to double check and see what it is in New Hampshire. Off the top of my head, truthfully, I don't I don't remember. Yeah. So if you get caught, you know, with with a thousand you know fake ballots, uh, trying to uh, implement a thousand fake ballots into an election, you know, you know, for one you get five years, for ten you get twenty years, you know, a hundred you get life, something like that. You need you need to have accountability. Disincentive. Dis- right, right. This. Yep. yep, you're mm-hmm. right. Man, I'll but tell you. There's, there's nothing that disincentivizes that behavior, and, and that's, that's right. the problem. And, and, and again, when you're talking about the perception that I think a lot of progressives have, a lot of statists have, that if they don't retain control, that it literally is the end for them, literally. Uh, at least that's the perception. Uh, and that's the rhetoric that's being sold to these people. On a regular basis, that the world is coming to an end. I mean, look at look at what what the, the, look at the, the the hubbub and the hyperbole and the rhetoric that's being spread about Kavanaugh. Okay, these people have their side. It didn't it didn't matter. It it it, it didn't matter which ultimately was the pick that Donald Trump made the other night. What mattered unless it, was unless it was Merrick Garland, Donald Trump. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and. Yeah, he he could have picked Merrick, Merrick Garland, and and maybe he wouldn't have got this blowback. Yeah, we, we Joe and I were t- were talking before the show to to make sure we were going to ask you about Kavanaugh and about the the blowback and about what your thoughts are and about the whole thing. Yeah, because there's a few a- angles here that we got to look at. One, Kavanaugh, the reputation he has. Some people are saying, well, you know, look at his ties to the Vince Foster death. Look at his, uh, you know, him being an establishment. Uh, you know, left and right, uh, swamp guy. Is that what Judge Napolitano said? That he is disappointed in President Trump with this pick because he picked somebody who he's saying he's trying to, to work against. And then you have people asking, is he in skull and bones? This and that. But, uh, we have this battle where things don't seem to matter as far as that because everybody who's a supporter of Trump wants to see Trump get his picks in. So if you even ask these questions, around certain kind of, of, of groups or people, well, you're looked at as an anti-Trump, you know, whatever. 
but we can't seem to get to the truth of the matter. And uh, the left, obviously, they just it didn't matter who the the pick was. They already had their signs uh, together before the the nomination was even. Return the uh, the sign, the <laughs> other signs that they had printed up. But go on. But yeah, there's so much here that uh, we want to get to the truth to, but it's just so muddied with the the political biases and, and insanity in the media. Well, what's your what's your take on Kavanaugh? I mean, bottom line take on him. Uh, and by the way, everyone should be on their knees, thanking God, in my view, that Hillary Clinton didn't make the pick. Um, yeah. You know, well, uh, you so. got to look at it. You got to look at it this way: that Brett Kavanaugh is that's a that's a win in two ways. Okay, the first win is that it's a it's a it's a conservative, and and a lot of his rulings seem to be very originalist interpretation of the Constitution, and that's a good thing. Um, and even Justice Scalia's widow was was thrilled with the decision. So that's a win. But the other win is that now Trump also gets to appoint a federal appellate level judge to replace Brett Kavanaugh. So it's a double win, and a lot of people don't realize that too. But now you've got you've got two vacancies. You've got Justice Kennedy, who's going to vacate. Brett Kavanaugh has been selected to fill that slot, and so now what happens? Well, Trump also gets to appoint another federal appellate judge in the in the D.C. Circuit. So there's another win right there. But you know, yeah, but there's a blockage though. I mean, he's got I think 179 open um, uh, judgeships to to fill that the Democrats have been blocking. I I, I think it's that that's close to that number. So, anyway, I, I I do believe that sooner or later that that those appointments will be made and that uh, you know and ultimately his will be done. Okay, um, but you know it, it, it's interesting. Um, and this kind of ties in. I'm, I'm going to seemingly digress here for a second, but I don't know if you heard the news today that uh, uh, the uh, the founder and chief executive officer of Papa John's Pizza. Oh yeah, I was going to get into this. Yes, I, w- yeah. I want to ask you about this because was this a trick? Uh, this was, uh, if you want to lay out the story, you can, but long story short, Papa John's, uh, founder, it was caught on tape, apparently with a, a PR firm he was working with, and somehow this, this, this firm recorded him, and I don't know, and I, what I can't understand, if these were scenarios they were playing through, like if somebody says this, or, you know, uh, or if this was his own real yeah, actual what, feelings. What do you know about this? Just, I, I mean, I, I know exactly what uh, I think. What most people know um, is that it was uh, it was part of a training, or there was something that was going on. Anyway, he was alleged to have used the N word, um, and he came out and says, "Yes, I did." And now he's you know he's forced out of his own company. Um, and and this is the new thing now. Uh, listen, I, I, I'll tell you. Uh, can I can I be crude for a second? <laughs> just just for a second. Yeah, because when he said okay. the, I have been, when so he used the N word, he didn't say he wasn't saying it like these people are blank. He was quoting right. something else. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. There's there's okay. I'm going to be crude for a second. Just forgive me, um, because there's this running joke that you know guys often say. There's two kinds of men: those who masturbate in the shower and those who lie about it. Okay. Um, I would say that if you are a person who says I have never ever allowed a racial slur to leave my lips. You're a liar, because everybody has. Everybody has. If you get if you get a, a a person of brown skin who cuts you off in the traffic, you're not saying you're not shaking your fist saying, oh that oh that irresponsible person of of, of dark skin. No, you're you're you. It's it's human nature. We all say things. Have I said things? Yes, I have. And I would never lie about that. Of course, I have. I've said things out of anger. I've made comments, you know, under my breath in private company. I've told jokes in private company. 
you know, that I, I mean, certain things. I have conversations with people all the time that I would never have on air, and I have conversations with people that I would probably never want repeated in front of my grandmother, for instance. We all do it, okay? And so now it's, we have to find and dox at this, you know, this, we have to go after a person's uh, employment. That's the doxing, D-O-X-X-I-N-G, is the, the term that has been given now. And the reason I bring that up is because uh, now they have dug up uh, a book from David Brock. David Brock was, uh, remember, he was a, a, a former uh, Republican uh, who now is really become a... Yeah. yeah. Um, and so David Brock wrote a book um, where uh, he's, he's referring to uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, this is this is an excerpt from the book. Laura Ingram's invitation to watch Bill Clinton's State of the Union address in, 19, in January 1997 with her father and her friends at her townhouse in Woodley Park. As I arrived at the house, which was decked out in an oversized southwestern motif more appropriate for Bachelor's Mountain Hideaway, the network cameras were coming on. When I saw one of Ken Starr's deputies, Brett Kavanaugh, who was sitting across from me, mouth the word bitch when, when the camera panned to Hillary. I excused myself and sat in the darkened pine-scented dining room alone, smoking. You know, oh, so you know, this is you know, this here's a perfect example. Oh, Brett Kavanaugh made a disparaging comment. He didn't even say it. He, somebody was practicing lip reading. And oh, oh, this is a this is a perfect example of why he shouldn't be confirmed um, because of this. This is this is the you know the level. And I, you know, wow. you, you, of course, you hear you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Don't ever, ever, ever come to me and point the finger and waggle that in my face and say, oh, you're a bad person because you said something. Well, show me your level of purity because I guarantee you, if it's coming from a Democrat and it's coming from a progressive, <laughs> you can take to the bank that whatever they're accusing somebody else of, done, of doing, they have done themselves probably ten times over. It's classic. It's classic. That's Nazi propaganda. Whatever it is that you're guilty of doing, you accuse your opposition of doing, and you make those accusations fervently. And you keep repeating that lie until it becomes reality. Yep, projection. This is what Hillary Clinton and the left media had done uh, very well during the 2016 presidential campaign. Everything that Hillary Clinton was guilty of, they did a great job, at least, of trying to make the case that it was President Trump who, in fact, was was guilty of these and things. Anything on. from pedophilia to the you know the, the womanizing, which I mean, he has some in his past, but even more than that, I mean, the Russia stuff, the just constant projection. Yep. Still going on. And 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 that's and that's the thing again that uh, you know if if uh, um. You know, if, if, if a Democrat, if a progressive wants to sit there and point their finger and say, oh, you know, you did this or you did that, I'll tell you right to your face, screw you, because you've done worse ten times over. Don't ever sit there and question my integrity. Don't ever sit there and question my morality or my ethics if you're a Democrat. By virtue of the fact that you're a Democrat, you're a morally bankrupt, degenerate piece of you-know-what. There we go. That's the Keith Hansen that we know from... 99.7 WNTK. Keith, another yeah. issue here as we uh, are in the last 10 minutes of the show, the walk-away movement. I don't know if we had a chance to talk about this last week, but there's this growing trend of uh, self-proclaimed Democrats who are making videos of why they're walking away from the Democratic Party, and it's taken on uh, really a, a, a nationwide 
it's turned into a nationwide movement, has become one of the biggest hashtags on Twitter, and uh, obviously the left trying to say, oh, this is Russian bot propaganda, but obviously, you know, each one of these people making their own video, giving their own uh, video testimonies, putting them up on YouTube and sharing them on Twitter, uh, they can't all be Russian, they all seem to be pretty much American to me, but uh, more back to the movement, the walkaway movement, uh, the, the, uh, the left is obviously threatened by this, and it seems to be gaining traction. Do you see this having any impact on the 2018 midterm election? Do you think this movement can uh, you know, continue to snowball into something much, much bigger as it has been? I, I think the concept of it is great. I, I love the fact that, of course, now it's being it's being discredited as, as ah, that's Russian bot. Yep. You know, I mean that that's like when you when you try to have a conversation with somebody and you bring up a very valid point, um, and they say, oh, that's fake news. And of course, that that is basically in a roundabout way they're invoking that postmodernistic concept. Well, that's not my reality. So if it's not my reality, it has to be fake. Um, and so, you, you know, I listen. I to be honest with you, if it is actually the Russians behind the walk away campaign, brilliant. Okay, if the Russians are trying to teach the world about the dangers of socialism and how morally bankrupt progressive Democrats are, more power to them, man. Where do I send the check? <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> it's a good point. Gosh, I love it. I, I was going to ask you something. Well, you had mentioned the, the phrase fake news. What, what does that even mean anymore? Uh, CNN. It, <laughs> oh, that's e- oh, that's easy. That's just news okay. I don't agree with. It's news I don't agree yep. with. Yep. That's All fake right. news. Facts I don't, be damned. I don't. I don't agree with you. Nope. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a flat earther. You're a round earther. You tell me. Oh well. Hey. You know. Geez. When you get up to thirty thousand feet, you can actually start to see the curvature. Of the, ah, that's fake news. Because I don't believe it. And so it's easier for me to cast it off. It's the classic fox and the grapes. I didn't want those anyway because they were sour. No, you're just pissed off because you didn't have the ingenuity to be able to reach the lowest hanging fruit. But instead, it's easier for you to cast it off and say, that they were sour. I never wanted them anyway. <laughs> it's a lot easier to say, yeah, you know what? I, I, I can't argue with your point because I don't know enough about what it is that I'm talking about to be able to have an intelligent critically based conversation with you and quite frankly you're kicking my ass in this debate so i can just turn around and say ah, well you know what that's fake news how, okay. how do you how do you debate that so now and again it's yeah. a social engineering tactic because now i'm not debating what it was originally debating now i'm trying to defend the integrity of the information that i'm using to substantiate my debate and Keith, let me ask you this, I don't, and not Very to get well too said. far off track, but a lot of these man-in-the-street interviews that are done uh, along political lines and, and asking questions about history, rather than people saying, I don't know, you know, I have no idea, uh, you know. Uh, I saw a great one the other day where uh, two days before they made the Supreme Court pick of Kavanaugh, uh, somebody was going around on the street asking people what they thought of Trump's Supreme Court pick, and, you know, they're all answering like they know who it is and... and uh uh, like it's been, you know, accomplished. But rather than saying, I don't know, or, you know, I haven't heard that yet, they answer, these people answer with the authority like they do know, when they absolutely, obviously in their answer, have no idea whatsoever. Is this that same kind of mentality, you know, facts be damned, I'm, I'm, I know best? Well, it's the, it, it's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, we've, we, I think we've talked about this before. It's a, it's a psychological cognitive bias where people of low ability have an illusory superiority. Um, so basically, okay. it's a really fancy huh. way of saying dumb people think that. I mean, you, think about how many people you know. 
Um, and you think about the person who is probably the dumbest person that you know. But they're the. I, I think about it in terms of in terms of gun classes. Okay, I always have one or two people in firearms classes that I'm teaching. They know everything. They were a ranger in SEAL Team Delta. You can't teach these people anything because they know everything. And when you put a gun in their hand, they're the person that typically you don't even get to the point where you're putting a gun in their hand because you realize they're a walking safety hazard and you kick them off the range before a live fire drill ever takes place. That's Dunning-Kruger. People who are highly intelligent often question their abilities. People who have, who, who really have, have low ability tend to overestimate um, or, or uh, yeah. they, they just believe that their intelligence or their abilities are far greater than what they are. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, Dunning, D-U-N-N-I-N-G, Kruger. Look it up. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, that aspect, because I used to, I was a head bouncer at a nightclub down in Hartford, Connecticut years ago. And so I had really good penmanship. So the manager used to give me the, the, the dry erase markers and tell me to, you know, write the, in my, my outstanding Catholic school penmanship, um, you know, the, the, the beers that we had on tap. And so I'd always, um, I'd always put two beers up there that didn't exist. And one was Nupelkopfbach, K-N-U-P-L-E-K-O-Umlaut-P-F-Bach, um, and then Black Osterschlafen, O-S-T-E-R-S-C-H-L-A-U-M-L-A-T-F-E-N. And I would put those up there. And I honestly, I, I kid you not, I remember I was sitting there one night, and I heard two guys, and one comes in and he's like, oh, my God, they've got Black Osterschlafen. The other guy goes, oh, yeah, I remember that beer. I used to drink that when I was in the Army. We, we used to get those. Oh, my God, how did they get Black Osterschlafen? So one of the guy comes over and he says, well, how, you know, do you have any more of that? I said, it doesn't exist. And then there's, oh, 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 well, that must have, that must have been something else I was thinking of. Yeah, it must have been something else that you were thinking of. You know, um, and that's the same reason why. If you go up and, and, and you ask somebody on the street, rather than wanting to admit they don't know something and appearing to be stupid, they will overestimate their, uh, their knowledge of that topic. And they'll begin to talk about it as if they actually have knowledge. And, and that's where I never understood the, that. The, the comedy comes out. Yeah, yeah, I never understood that mindset or, or the, any, I never understood the reasoning behind it. Or why anybody in their right mind, and I guess that's the, the point, right that's mind. The, that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. I think, fantastic. Well, in the we we got about two and a half minutes left, Keith. Anything that uh, that that you want to promote that you're doing that uh, we should know about that that the audience should know about? Just the radio shows, just the TV shows, and uh, you know, just uh, trying to trying to speak the truth day after day after day, and uh, do my best to piss off progressives each and every day. Rumor has it, mission is being accomplished in that regard. Uh, f- folks, really, tune in to Keith Hansen, uh, Keith on the air, uh, WNTK.com, the Keith Hansen Show, 99.7, up in New England. You, you're on from, uh, what, the 6, six, six a.m., six right? To 6 to 10. 6 yeah. to 10, right, yeah. No. Which, uh, Matter of fact, just wow. uh, just booked, uh, just got uh, Judge Janine Pirro confirmed on the program. So, uh, oh, when's she coming, coming up? Uh, uh, she's coming up on the twenty uh, seventh of. Uh, I usually book about a week and a half to two weeks out. So, just got okay. a confirmation from her today that uh, uh, Friday the twenty seventh. Uh, so I think it's Friday the twenty seventh. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll be listening, and, and folks, you can listen. Just go to uh, ninety nine WNTK 
uh, and go, go to, or I'm sorry, go to WNTK.com and listen on the air there. And if you're up in New England, of course, just tune the dial, 99.7 WNTK. Love it. Man, I'll tell you what, you are the man. Thank you so much for, for taking us right out to the, uh, to the end of the program. I really appreciate it. And get some, get some rest. You guys I know, know I, four, I love your show and, and love your show and love being a part of it. And, uh, thank you. Thanks for, uh, giving me, uh, a, a, a fifth hour of broadcast time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're a machine, so. But, but thanks, brother, for, for keeping the, uh, keeping the New England area conservative, at least, uh, feeding the conservative uh, appetite. So appreciate that. All right. All right, brother. Have a great night. God bless, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, we're about a minute out. I, I actually I looked at the, looked at the clock here. Are we, where are we at? We're, oh, Eric's saying, no, no, just stretch it, stretch it. Go ahead, mic up, Eric. Yeah. Stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. Play some, uh, we, no, were, uh, we were listening to some good music earlier, uh, Eric. Um, maybe we can take us. No, we can't no, do that. No, we'll get we copyright can't. violations. Of course not. Hey, well, well folks, tomorrow we, we have a good show lined up for you tomorrow night. Uh, Jack Berkman, who Seth Rich, you know that story. Tomorrow night on the air. Of course, he held a press conference earlier this week about uh, it was on the tenth on the second anniversary of uh, the death of or the murder of Seth Rich. Uh, and bringing out this alleged new witness, going to be questioning him, and uh, it's going. You know what? I'm looking forward to this. I, I've got some questions for that man. I'm sure you do as well. So make sure you tune in tomorrow night to that program. I want to thank John for setting that up, and uh, of course, thank you for listening. Of course, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, Doug Hagman Radio Show, two to three. And, and Joe and John. Real quick on that note. Yeah, um, yeah. there's been a, a, just a problem. We, we were dealing with problems with our email, with our website. It's fixed, I think. It is fixed. Yep. And, but also there was a problem, not because of Todd, but, uh, something that I think I screwed up on FileZilla and Dad, you had a little hand in this too, creating these extra files. But, uh, I the last not. two days, at least on Hagman, uh, on our show, today played on Global Star, our show from yesterday. But the day before that, it played at Alex Jones' feed, and that's something because I screwed something up. So tomorrow we'll be back to normal with the Hagman Daily Show on Global Star. But those shows, we we did not miss any shows this week. Those are on Blog Talk and on podcast and whatnot. You can just go, go to Hagman Report. Yeah, just go to Hagman Report. You can find the shows there. Uh, we did shows all week on the Hagman Daily Show, so they are there. To, but just because they didn't too, play yeah. on 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 uh, Global Star doesn't mean that they weren't there. So no. But yeah, you're imagining these things. The Doug Hagman radio show to make sure you check that out. Are you doing, uh, the fourth hour of InfoWars tomorrow? No, uh, okay. no, I've got some scheduling <laughs> conflicts tomorrow. So I've, I've got, I've got a lot. No, no. Well, I know that the, uh, that's been going on for, on Fridays, uh, hit or miss on Fridays, yeah, uh, for the last few months. No, so. I've got some issues, scheduling issues. So. Um, I'm, I'm not sure when when I'll set it up again, but uh, but no. Well, let me do this. Let me end the show on a on a on a positive note. All right. And I don't have the article in front of me, but I'm going to go off memory. This is how we ended the Daily Show. It was study was done over 300 babies over a two year period of time of babies in the womb, eight, uh, 16 to 38 weeks old, that were responded and were singing to classical music, Christmas carols, and uh, some Disney music. The babies favored classical music, but it just goes to show you when there they're you only four and a half inches long, when they're little tiny miniature human beings that have just formed, you know, 16 weeks in, into the uh, uh, pregnancy, 
they respond, not only respond, but sing to music and actually are somehow are able, I didn't read the whole study, but their favorite music is classical. And, so for and, anybody out there who I, wants I'm to say you, that, you know, it it's, a, it works. it's just a clump of cells or it contributes nothing to society, so there's no problem in killing it or aborting it. Or laughing and celebrating. Read that study and watch those videos. Uh, thanks for thanks for closing on that note. I mean, really, and we it, need that. I, I think it's Life Site News. But if you just do a, a search on a search engine for uh, a babies in womb responding to classical music, something like that, the study should pop up. And it was just released very recently. The things too, and that's why the classical, I believe. Yeah, and there's a whole different. Uh, you know, people were making the arguments. Well, it's any you know plants or any matter responds to sound, but yeah, I don't buy that argument. It doesn't sing back uh, if it's not living. But with that, let's have a, a wrap up, and we'll be back right. tomorrow.